0: all. It is July 2022, and this is Vanessa Cardi welcoming you back to another episode of Right on Prime. And this month, I'm joined by our good friend of the show, Dr. Adrian Salim. Great to have you back, Adrian.
1: Hey, uh, Vanessa. It's great to be back here with you. How are you doing?
2: That little smile I
0: see there? I'm doing all right, and I've been looking forward to this recording because I have a case to discuss.
1: Oh, do you? I knew you would. You always do, Cardi.
0: <laughs> so here we go. So I had a 43-year-old female patient present to our outpatient clinic, with painful lesions on her fingers. They would start off sort of like smallish, whitish bumps under the skin, and then they would grow and grow until they would sort of burst and push out what she called a chalk ball. Sometimes once the chalky material was out, it would heal over, and then eventually another bump would form underneath the skin. But on other occasions, that little area never really healed over and left kind of an
1: open ulceration. That sounds not fun. Sounds painful. Did she have any of these lesions anywhere else, or they were just on her hands?
0: Well, when I first met her, they were primarily on her fingers, but she did have a few on her toes as well. The ones on her toes were not ulcerating, but they were definitely sore.
1: Did she have any underlying disease that could have led to these painful lesions? And did you have any idea what these lesions were themselves?
0: Well, she actually had pretty advanced sclerodactyly in her hands, and that's when the hands start to curl inwards because the skin is hardening and contracting meaning the person ends up with hands that kind of resemble claws, and this was actually due to her underlying diagnosis of scleroderma.
1: All right, got it. So I'm guessing that these painful lesions on her digits were uh, calcinosis then? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, exactly. They were a classic presentation of calcinosis cutis, or what in her case, unfortunately, eventually developed into calcinosis universalis, because these lesions started appearing on her back and on her limbs, and even on the back of her head, and they certainly had a negative effect on her quality of life. That
1: sounds just so awful for this poor lady. But when you first saw the lesions, did you know right away what they were? Did you do any investigations? Did you make any referrals? Uh, What did you do?
0: Well, I certainly suspected the diagnosis, but given that I had never diagnosed them myself, I thought I should look into the proper pathway for investigations. Now, I was lucky because I already knew that she had scleroderma, but let's pretend that she was not yet diagnosed with that and that this was how she initially presented. So I would, of course, start off with a thorough history, including travel history, because sometimes some weird infections can cause these, and also listening for any symptoms that would lead me to think of an autoimmune disorder, a malignancy, vitamin D excess, or any underlying renal issues. And I also, I would, of course, check in about her family history as well, because perhaps there could have been a clue there.
1: And you kind of already mentioned the physical findings in this case, but in terms of painful lumps with some ulcerations and this like white material coming out of it, is there anything else that you need to look for?
0: Well, I guess looking for any signs related to those conditions that I was worried about with the history, like autoimmune or malignancy or renal failure, and also checking the rest of her body to see if she had lesions beyond just the hands and the feet.
1: So if you did suspect calcinosis, what sort of investigations should we be doing? Whenever I think of autoimmune disease-related issues, it always makes me think of all those you know, thousands of autoantibodies that I never have heard of, but rheumatology asked me to order. So I'm assuming that there are you know, thousands of different tests that you need to do.
0: Well, if you're worrying about the underlying cause of the calcinosis, then you're certainly going to need to do all of the standard malignancy and that whole barrage of autoimmune tests. But for figuring out if what you're actually seeing right there in front of you is calcinosis, it's really only a matter of a few tests. And these tests are, not surprisingly, related to calcium and phosphorus metabolism. So it kind of all fits the picture. You're basically going to want to do serum levels of calcium, vitamin D, and parathyroid hormone as well as phosphorus. And then in addition, you're going to order a 24-hour urinary calcium level.
1: All right, that doesn't sound too complicated. And no matter where your first encounter with this patient might be, say it's in an urgent care, an office, or emergency department, I mean, these tests are uh, pretty widely available in any of those settings. So any other tests that we should be uh, thinking about or any other steps that we should be doing?
0: X-rays can be useful if you need sort of further confirmation of what you're looking at because the calcinosis show up pretty clearly on X-ray. But there's no real need to do any more advanced imaging, unless, of course, you're looking for that underlying cause issue. So whether you're looking for tumors or some other issue
1: that could be causing the calcinosis in the first place. Okay, got it. let Just keep it simple. So hopefully treatment is as simple as investigations?
0: Unfortunately, not so much. There are things that we can do, but they aren't always very effective, and they are not without their own side effects. It's suggested that we actually adopt kind of a two-pronged attack. We work towards treating the underlying cause of the calcinosis. In this case, it would have been the patient's scleroderma to make sure that's kind of in control, while at the same time treating the calcinoses themselves.
1: Okay, but leaving aside the management of scleroderma here, because that is a huge topic in and of itself, and don't really want to get into that right now, but can you run through some of the specific things that we should be doing for uh, calcinosis?
0: For sure. So straight off, we should mention that the calcinoses don't necessarily need to be treated. If they're not bothering the patient or affecting their function, Or if they're not painful, then watchful waiting is certainly an option. But if, like in our patient, they are causing pain, there are either medication options or surgical options. Surgery is really more for those patients who have a limited number of lesions, and while it can sometimes be effective, those procedures are, of course, not risk-free. Lesions can recur, infections can certainly occur with any surgical procedure, and you can also get formation of sinus tracts. So that's obviously something that you need to make sure the patients know about before they have surgery. And then there are medications. If the patient doesn't have too many lesions, then injection of sodium thiosulfate is a possibility, and there don't seem to be too many harms associated with this. The evidence says that it can help a bit, but if the patient is leery of injections or if there's simply too many lesions to make it practical to be in doing all these injections, then diltiazem, colchicine, or minocycline are options.
1: And is there anything that would make you choose one of those treatment options over another one?
0: Well, diltiazem is kind of my go-to med to start off with, unless the patient has already developed ulcerations from sites of previously extruded calcinoses. In a case like that, the patient's inflammatory cycles are already kind of revved up, so going with something more anti-inflammatory like minocycline or colchicine will hopefully get you more bang for your buck. So if it's straightforward and no ulcerations, diltiazem, if you're seeing ulcerations, you're going to go more for an anti-inflammatory like mino or colchicine.
1: All right, so that's pretty clear and straightforward overview, but I'm kind of feeling despondent about this situation in this case, so am I wrong to have that feeling about this particular case?
0: No, unfortunately, I think your gut feeling is spot on here, Adrian, because these lesions are generally painful. They often happen on parts of the body that are already painful from arthritic changes and sclerodactyly in the case of scleroderma patients, and they really further impair a patient's function. They also have a negative cosmetic effect, and as I mentioned, they are painful. There are some treatment options, but none of those are foolproof, and none of them are without
1: side effects of their own. Yeah, it's kind of depressing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it really is. It's very hard to uh, sort of explain to a patient that we can try to treat these, but you're probably going to keep getting them.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for sharing this case and uh, reminding us of the different steps in diagnosis and and management. It's really useful.
0: My pleasure, Adrian. But now let's uh, turn to hopefully some happier topics, or different topics at least. Let's get on with the rest of the show. Because on Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee, Heidi joins Hobie to chat about treatment refractory depression and the UCVCT. while on The Generalist, Andrew Bilt joined Heidi to chat about other loop diuretics that we should perhaps consider over furosemide. That one kind of blew me away and has led me to change my practice, so do not miss out.
1: Yeah, and then in our office piece for the month, Penny Wilson and Heidi chat about the possible complications with the use of OCP. And for urgent care, tune in for a chat about anaphylaxis.
0: And then we get to introduce a new speaker to the Right on Prime world. I interviewed GI specialist Dr. Chadwick Williams about inflammatory bowel disease. This was kind of a different approach to a topic because I interviewed him about IBD from the ER doc perspective, and that piece is on MRAP this month, and then followed up with an interview with him about how to care for IBD patients in the outpatient setting, which is here on our show. Your subscription to Right on Prime covers MRAP as well, so be sure to check out the er focus piece as well for more delicious educational nuggets.
1: And then for rural medicine this month, you tackle the thorny issue of getting a second medical opinion from a specialist, Um, especially when you're working in a remote community. It can be quite a tricky situation when you disagree with their suggestion. So tune into that one. That's a great one.
0: And so without further ado, let's jump into Right on Prime July 2022. And we will see you on the other side for the
1: summary. Sounds good, Cardi. See you there.
3: Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee.
4: Heidi, it's good to see you again. How are you doing?
5: I am doing swell, Hobie, swell as always, and I hear that you have a clinical conundrum that we're going to talk about today, and this makes me happy because my middle
4: name is Conundrum. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Heidi Conundrum James. That's a little unusual, but okay.
5: I enjoy a good conundrum. That's why I went into medicine, right?
4: Very good. That's absolutely true. Bring it. Bring it on, Hobie. Okay. So I have a patient. He's a middle-aged guy. He's got very severe depression. He's been on several different antidepressants. He's had a very minimal response. The side effects were bad enough that he couldn't tolerate it. He's been hospitalized for suicidal ideation in the past. He is managed jointly with psychiatry, who is adjusting his medications. And he has been in therapy off and on in the past, but really has told me that he doesn't find it to be that helpful. His depression is pretty severe. He's not working. He reports kind of mostly staying in his apartment twenty four seven, and really only leaving to come to the doctors. So how would you help this patient?
5: Oh, wow. Well, that is so tough. And Unfortunately, I've had similar patients too, and these are people that your, your heart just breaks for, because there seems to be something about their neurochemistry that seems either completely or significantly unresponsive to available medications. Like some of these patients will adhere like the Dickens to the treatment plan and the meds, and they continue to feel awful. It's uh, so challenging for them, and honestly, sometimes for me as their provider, because I want them to feel better, and I just can't help them. So I'm glad we're talking a little bit about medications to manage depression and also delving into some detail into a treatment for severe or
4: refractory depression. Yeah, I mean, this is really tough, which is why I bring it up. So, you know, I'm curious uh, in your own practice, when do you think about switching antidepressants when a patient is not responding versus adding or augmenting on with a second medication?
5: Oh, wow. You're making me wonder if my practice is (laughs) evidence-based here. Hobi. you're putting me on the spot. Um, but I guess uh thinking on the spot, I would probably stick with one medication with dose escalation for about 2 months, and then if there was no response, I'd either talk to the patient about switching to a different class of antidepressants or perhaps augment the therapy with a second med. So, I guess uh kind of depends on the
4: patient and the situation. Um how about you? Yeah, I'm much more of a switcher than an adding-on person because I I just I'm not a big fan of polypharmacy. I think that's a real problem for a lot of my patients. And so I'm much more apt to stop and switch an antidepressant than adding a secondary medication on. But there is some data for treatment-resistant depression that adding a secondary medication may be more efficacious than switching meds. So that was kind of news to me as I've been thinking about this patient. How about another question here? How many antidepressants will you try before you say, you know, you're just not responding like I would like you to. I think you need to see a specialist.
6: Hmm.
5: Well, I guess between maximizing a dose, switching a med, then augmenting with something, that's probably, I'd say I'd try meds from three different classes, either alone or in combination. And at that point, if I, I would refer at that point.
4: Yeah, I, I would say I'm very similar. Usually two or three different antidepressants, often from different classes to see if someone might have a different response. You know, I tend to think that most SSRIs are about equivalent in terms of efficacy. So I often ask patients, have they heard of a medication? Have their friends taken a medication that they found to be helpful? You know, I think if a patient thinks it'll work for them, I'm happy to engage the placebo effect to help them get the maximum response, you know, that they can get.
5: And this is one of the things I love about being a family physician because, you know, um, conditions do tend to run in families. So mm-hmm. I may have several members of the same family who have depression and know that, you know what, this medication worked for that person and you share some genes. So perhaps it'll, it'll work for them as well. So yeah, there's a perks to being a family doctor here. But I have a question for you. What is your go-to antidepressant?
4: Yeah. So, you know, I'll tell you, most of my patients have Medicaid. And so I'm limited to mostly generics, but I do really like escitalopram. There was a nice meta-analysis, Cipriani, this in Lancet in 2018, and they looked at which antidepressants are more effective and better tolerated, and acetalopram and vortioxetine were the two that were more effective and better tolerated than other antidepressants. And so, uh, vortioxetine is not generic, and so usually my go-to first-line medication that I'll try is acetalopram.
5: Hmm, Interesting. I used to prescribe a lot of acetalopram, but then I switched more so to sertraline, Mm hmm because it's more weight-neutral than escitalopram, so that seems to be a, an important thing for many patients. And what I like about sertraline is the wide dosing range so that you can like, target different symptoms with different doses. But I will say I am becoming quite a fan of 40 I've seen that make a big difference for patients who don't respond to an SSRI or an SNRI. Going back to the case, so with this patient, did you switch medications or did you add another med?
4: Yeah, so we've tried both, right? We've tried to switch medications. We've added a second agent, you know, not without much success, right? And so I was sitting and thinking about this patient and I was thinking, okay, what other combination of medications should I try? Should I try another atypical antipsychotic to add on top of the SSRI? I even started thinking, okay, could I talk to specialists about using things like ketamine, which I, I haven't really used, but I know has some positive data associated with that. And that's when I got a message from his psychiatrist about considering ECT for this patient.
5: Oh, wow. Of course. Of course. How can we forget about ECT? Because I sense that this patient is exactly the type of person for whom ECT would be helpful. Yeah. When we say ECT, we're talking about electroconvulsive therapy, right? It's not some Loma Linda special sauce that uh, the rest of us don't know about.
4: No, no. No. Exactly. And I, I, you know, I thought this was a great idea. and something, honestly, I've not thought about since medical school. And so I thought about, okay, yeah, I think this might help the patient, but how would I describe it to the patient and how would I help them navigate whether this would be a good choice for them or
5: not? This can be very helpful for severe depression, bipolar, and other select psychiatric disorders, but we don't see it used as often as I thought it might be based on the amount of attention we paid to it in, uh, in medical school.
4: Yeah. And so we'll be fully transparent here. We're not psychiatrists. We won't be performing this procedure, but I do think it's worth reviewing. And likely, we would be partnering with our psychiatrists who would be performing this procedure. So, you know, it's not as common as we would think. It looks like less than maybe 1% of patients with depression or bipolar disorder receive ECT as part of their treatment. And there also appear to be some health disparities in the United States around access to ECT, with African-American patients less likely to receive ECT than white patients, and that those with government-funded insurance like Medicaid are less likely to receive ECT.
5: Yeah, and I can imagine that cost would be an issue, too, in some healthcare payment models, because not all insurance companies are going to cover this. And it can be quite expensive because, you know, you're talking about general anesthesia, repeated treatments, and, you know, potentially dealing with some side effects. And the cost could be well over $10,000. And most people who are severely depressed, like your patient, are not working and don't have that kind of money.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big barrier for my patients. And I think there are other issues to consider, right? We talked about this, like how would you manage some of the comorbidities for patients who end up consenting for ECT?
5: Yeah, and some of the potential side effects. I mean, this is generally safe, but it's uh, worthwhile for us to review some of the side effects. Cardiopulmonary ones like tachycardia, high blood pressure, also increased intracranial pressure. And we have to look for patients whose comorbidities would not do well with these side effects to make sure they're okay to have this done.
4: Yeah, I think it's a great point, right? So classically, cardiac conditions like aortic stenosis, AFib, coronary artery disease, hypertension, they all kind of need to be appropriately worked up and managed prior to considering something like ECT for a patient. As with any therapy, there's potential side
5: effects with ECT, and some of those are related to the general anesthesia, like some potential nausea, and others are related to the ECT itself, like some people can develop some jaw discomfort just from that master spasm from the electrical shock. But probably the one we really need to be aware of and to let patients know about is some retrograde amnesia. Typically, that's just for the short time leading up to the ECT, like the days to the week ahead of time. But for the rare patient, it can actually extend further back than that. But the good news is this is typically not a long-lived side effect. It does get better for most. You know, interestingly, Hobie, pregnancy is not a contraindication. Although when it's done, you certainly need to have very close fetal monitoring and definitely make sure the patient is able to give informed consent. And make sure anesthesia knows about this, because sedation requirements are going to be different with a pregnant patient.
4: Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, shocked me. Uh, no, no <laughs> pun intended. When I was reviewing the literature was that pregnancy Was not a contraindication to ECT. I would have assumed if I had a pregnant patient that they would not be a candidate, but there is literature to support that it can be safe uh, in pregnant patients.
5: Yeah, and I remember chatting with one of our psychiatrists about that once, and they reminded me that a lot of the meds we use to treat mental illness, you know, may pass through the placenta and potentially impact the fetus. So, and sometimes it's more appropriate to give ECT rather than to trial some meds. Absolutely. But what about a patient's medications? Like, is ECT going to quote-unquote fix things and they won't need to take medications anymore? Or should they continue taking their meds for their mental health while undergoing ECT? In general, yeah, most psychiatric
4: medications are safe to continue while undergoing ECT. And there is some data to suggest maybe even a synergistic effect when you combine psychiatric medications with ECT. In terms of like non-psychiatric medications, Those heart condition medications, inhalers, all that kind of stuff can be continued. And the one thing you may need to think about, particularly with the prevalence of diabetes, is that you may need to adjust some of those medications based on the fact that patients have to be fasting prior to the procedure because, again, the need for general anesthesia with ECT.
5: Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned the need for informed consent, and that seems a bit tricky to me, especially when a patient is very depressed or has another severe psychiatric illness, are they able to provide informed consent?
4: Yeah, I agree. That's really tricky. And, you know, ultimately, our psychiatry colleagues would be doing the consent for these patients, but I think it's reasonable as primary care physicians that we should make sure that our patients have the capacity to understand and agree with the procedure. So, uh, as we talked about cost, the $10,000 question, how would you describe ECT to a patient?
5: Well, I'd tell them exactly what it is, but in reassuring terms, because I think a lot of people, their only exposure to ECD has been in you know movies and that sort of thing, and it's not an accurate portrayal. So I let them know that this is a procedure that's done while they're asleep, while they're under anesthesia, and that a small amount of electricity is sent through their brain, which causes a seizure, and that resets their brain. That sounds like a simple and fair explanation.
4: Yeah. And, you know, I would add that patients don't feel pain during ECT. Yeah. And unlike the movies, it's not that their whole body is shaking or convulsing. And really, if you've seen this procedure done, the only evidence of a seizure is usually you'll see the foot or hand twitching as part of the procedure.
5: Yeah. Now, I've had patients ask me, how does it actually work? And I've been stymied by that question. Like the physiology really just seems to me seizure, brain reset. But do you have a better understanding of it than I do?
4: Well, I don't know if we know for sure. And again, I'm not a psychiatrist, but we can kind of get a sense of from animal studies is we know that there are neurotransmitters that are released through the process of ECT, which include things like dopamine and serotonin, which we are know are very important to mood regulation. Um, we also know that ECT tends to release hormones like thyroid and endorphins, which also could be very helpful to a depressed patient.
5: Okay, so what else should we talk to patients about when considering ECT?
4: I think the number of treatments is a barrier. You know, patients often need 10 or more treatments, and mostly they happen two or three times a week. And then some recommend like maintenance ECT on top of that after remission for up to six months if they see a response. So this can be a lot of time and energy necessary for patients and support family members or friends to be able to help arrange all these treatments for a patient.
5: It's kind of like dialysis for the brain then, eh?
4: Yeah, or even chemotherapy, where you might say, oh, this patient needs to do several sessions, very concentrated over a period of months. Well, we know that when patients have to do that, they have to very much change their life, right, in order Mm. to be able to make these appointments and give it the time and attention it deserves.
5: Yeah, like certainly, um, you know, living at a distance from the treatment facility, getting time off work, family obligations, getting a drive to and from the procedure. There's there's just a lot of barriers for them to overcome. And, and that's things that we as their family doctor can help them sort out. Like we're not going to be doing the ECT, but we can help them figure out how to navigate those barriers.
4: Yeah. And I think those are all really important barriers. And I think you touched on this earlier, but there is a strong preconceived notion around ECT, right? That the idea that you're inducing a seizure in a patient, we don't really totally understand how ECT works. And so that makes, I think, some doctors and patients shy away from ECT.
5: Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And an ECT isn't appropriate for your average person with mild to moderate depression, but it certainly can be helpful for those with severe psychiatric disease or people who have non-responsive psychiatric disease. So I think if it's something you're wondering about, it's worthwhile discussing it with psychiatry. But before we go, I'm hoping we can briefly mention ECT's cousin therapy, TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation.
4: So TMS uses magnetic fields like an MRI to induce a current through the brain, right? Its cost is probably similar to ECT, but can be north of $10,000 for a treatment course. But interesting, when you compare it head-to-head for conditions like depression, ECT appears to be more effective than TMS, but I would say both are reasonable options for patients who fail medication therapy doesn't like medicine still feel
5: like it's in its infancies in some ways? You know, like we have like immunotherapy and gene targeted therapy. And we can also just use magnets on your brain. So wild. So wild.
4: I know. Yeah.
5: Now, how did your patient
4: respond to the ECT? Well, after discussing the treatment with him, he ultimately declined. Uh I think the idea of a seizure uh, scared him. And there is a, a mortality risk of a approximately maybe one in a hundred thousand. And so when I did mention that to him, he did not want to proceed further. So we're working on trialing another medication with the plans to sort of think about ECT or TMS in the future if real no improvement occurs.
5: Oh dear. Well, I'm sorry to hear your patient uh, is still not doing well, but I'm reassured knowing that it's potentially on the radar for him again, and he's receptive to discussing it again, should the situation um, require it.
4: Yeah. And I, I appreciate your comment, Heidi. Again, this is not something really I thought about since medical school, but as you mentioned, in a selected patient, it may be something great that you can bring up with your psychiatrist in your area or your hospital or treatment facility and try to think about which patients might really benefit because obviously those who are really struggling, if ECT can help them, they can really gain back a quality of life that they don't currently have.
5: Yeah. And that's certainly something that our, our patients deserve. They do deserve a good quality of life. And it's our job to You know, leave no stone unturned as we help them strive for that goal. Okay, perfect, Kobe. Thank you for bringing up this important topic. I've enjoyed discussing it with you.
4: Yeah, thank you. We'll see you next month.
2: Old man in cardiac arrest and our building just lost power.
3: All right, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, 3,000 grams of sole medron. Stack. What are you, MacGyver?
7: No, I'm the generalist. Hey, Andrew, good to see you. It is good to see you, Heidi. It is always my favorite time of the month, the day, the week, whenever I can talk to my favorite doctor, mom. Extraordinary human. (laughs)
5: Okay, okay, you're embarrassing me now. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad you're able to join me because we're chatting about something that you and I were texting about a little while ago because we text from time to time about work stuff because we both do hospital work and sometimes it's nice to pick somebody else's brain. So this story was really based on communication between your VA hospital and my community hospital.
7: We were talking about a patient that you had that had heart failure that was in the hospital and you were saying how surprised you were at how much furosemide it took to get them completely diuresed and how you just had to keep going up on the dosage and you were just shocked by it.
5: And then you came back with, well, have you tried torsamide? And I replied, I have no idea
7: what you're talking about, Andrew Bilt. Let me tell you, you are not alone. Not many people know about this magical loop diuretic or bumetanide, another one of the loop diuretics that is maybe overlooked a little too often. In fact, a study on heart failure hospitalizations in 2009 and 2010 looked at almost a quarter million patients that got a loop diuretic during their hospitalization, and about 87% of the patients got furosemide, with 3% of the patients that got bumetanide and only, ready for this, 0.4% of the patients received torsemide. Not 4%, 0.4% of the patients. Had torsamide. That is a whole bunch of people getting furosemide with no one really getting anything else.
5: So let's jump into this evidence for loop diuretics and heart failure.
7: Before we get into that, let's do a quick refresher on loop diuretics. Refresher. They work at the loop of Henle where they inhibit the sodium potassium chloride co transporter. Also, the pharmacodynamics are quite interesting. You see, Drug levels are needed to cross a threshold before they will work. It's not like give just a little bit of furosemide and you get a little bit of urine. No, 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 no. It's don't give enough and nothing happens. Give enough and then the floodgates open up. It's like a light switch. It's either on or it's off. This is why often you will hear double the dose of furosemide rather than just give them a little bit more because you have to make sure you cross the threshold. So let's look at each of these
5: three drugs on some key characteristics. First, uh, a little bit of history. How long have they been around for? Because it feels like torsamide can't have been around for that long if I haven't heard of it. You would think,
7: but furosemide has been around, approved, for medical use since 1964. Bumetanide was approved in 1972. And torsamide, although the newest kid on the block, It was approved in 1993, so still not that new. No, no, that's a a
5: long time ago now, so I'm surprised I haven't heard of it, and surely it must be generic by now,
7: eh? Yes, all three of these are generic, and per GoodRx, they are all pretty similar when it comes to price.
5: Okay, let's talk route of administration. How can we give these medications
7: to patients? All three of these medications can be used either IV or orally. And I have seen or read some talk about sub-Q furosemide, but that is way beyond this chat and you should probably have some colleagues on board helping you if you're going to do that. So we're just going to ignore that. But torsemide and bumetanide have much better bioavailability via the oral route than furosemide does. There's 80% bioavailability for torsemide and bumetanide, while only 50% for furosemide.
5: Wow, 50% bioavailability for oral rate is uh, really kind of the pits for furosemide and might explain why we so often need to switch to IV furosemide. What impacts that
7: GI absorption? The big problem is food. Bioavailability of furosemide can decrease by up to 30% with food, while torsamide is not affected by food consumption. And I've heard time and
5: time again from cardiology colleagues that a patient who is fluid overloaded is going to have an edematous bowel, which will really impact their furosemide
7: absorption. The key caveat here is, is this actually a thing? It's debated in the literature, but you don't have to worry about it if you're only prescribing torsemide.
5: Between the food and the potential interaction of the edematous bowel, that's probably why we're switching over to IV therapy. How do the absorption rates compare for IV, Andrew?
7: there really isn't much difference in IV absorption.
5: Okay, that's good, that's good. Now let's move on to onset of action and duration of action.
7: Well, the onset of action for oral medications, let's start there, is that they all kick in within about 30 minutes to two hours. But this is much quicker for IV treatment. Torsamide, though, has a much longer duration of action, somewhere around 18 to 24 hours compared to just four to six hours for ferrosamide. the combination between increased bioavailability plus longer half-life results in needing less frequent dosing of torsamide compared to ferrosamide. According to the American College of Pharmacology, torsamide 40 mg daily is equivalent to ferrosamide 40 mg BID. How about bumetanide dosing? Oh, bumetanide is about 40 times stronger than ferrosamide.
5: Yeah, and its incredible potency is why you see such comparatively minuscule doses like one milligram, two milligrams. Bumetanide punches above its weight. Let's talk about how these drugs are broken down in the body. How are they different? And does this matter?
7: Well, it completely, it totally 100% matters because so many of our patients with heart failure also have chronic kidney disease. And as we all know, those kidneys can take a hit with diuresis. Furosemide is renally excreted, so if your kidneys aren't the best, that doesn't work in your favor. In contrast, torsemide and bumetanide are metabolized in joint effort by the kidneys and the liver.
5: Okay, thanks for that helpful review, Andrew. And now we get to jump into the part that I know you've been waiting for, the evidence. Evidence. I, for one, really need to know what the evidence says before I swap out ferrosamide for either torsamide or abumedinide.
7: Well, I wish that there was a head to head trial or data for all three of these. There isn't, so we'll just have to take what we have. First of all, torsamide versus ferrosamide. We have a trial published in 2001, which was open label of 234 patients who were randomized to either torsemide or furosemide and followed for one year for the outcome of heart failure readmissions. And it occurred significantly less in the torsemide group, only 17% of the time, compared to 32% of the time in the furosemide group.
5: Wow, that sounds impressive. That's almost a 50% risk reduction for heart failure hospitalizations. That uh, that does stand
7: out. And the individuals who were prescribed torsemide on top of their already normal heart failure medications, had almost a 50% relative reduction in mortality. The absolute numbers were about 2% in the torsemide group and about 4% in the furosemide group. And if that wasn't enough, there was also a significant improvement in the functional heart glass for those individuals that were assigned to torsemide. Again, that's
5: kind of impressive. I mean, it is only from 4% to 2%, but that's a statistically and clinically
7: significant finding there. I would agree. I mean, it is a small number, but it's death. And even a little bit of improvement in death is (laughs) still a really big improvement in life. You know what I mean? Very true. Very true.
5: Now, I also found a meta-analysis from 2019 that looked at a total of 14 randomized trials and contained just over 8,000 patients. And this found that those who received horsemide had both fewer heart failure hospitalizations and also were more likely to have an improvement in their New York Heart Association class of heart failure. But they did not find a difference in mortality, unlike the study that you were just mentioning.
7: Yeah. And to be fair, we should mention that there currently is a 6,000 patient randomized trial that is underway, but it isn't expected to be done until August 2023.
5: Based on these studies, Andrew, I'd say that torsamide would easily take out furosemide in a street fight, like, hands down, no problem.
8: Two hits. Me hitting you, you hitting the floor. Anytime you're ready, pal.
7: Hands down, I agree. Said differently of all the numbers that we just kind of threw at you, the number needed to treat at 10 and a half months to prevent heart failure hospitalizations with torsamide is around six.
1: Six, count them, six.
7: Okay, yeah, an NNT of six to prevent hospitalizations at 10.5 months is impressive. Even if the numbers are way off and the NNT is doubled, and so now it's 12, that's still really good. So I just really feel passionate about a change or at least a consideration for change to torsamide.
5: Now, what about pumetanide? What sort of evidence do we have in favor or against this medication?
7: Well, we have two trials pitting bumetanide and furosemide against each other, which is not much. One of them was for nephrotic syndrome, so not the heart failure population that we're looking at. But one looked at heart failure, and the bumetanide group had less dyspnea on exertion and at rest, but there was no impact beyond that.
5: Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So sounds like maybe there's a slight edge for bumetanide there, potentially, versus furosemide.
7: Yes. And I think we are seeing really compelling or at least pretty compelling evidence that torsemide for sure and possibly bumetonide might have bigger impacts on the outcomes that matter to the patients with heart failure.
5: Now, Andrew, I'm curious, why do you think we're all still stuck on furosemide? I understand that knowledge translation takes time, but surely to goodness, torsemide has been around since
7: 1993, and that was not yesterday. I think there are probably two reasons. One is that we do what we've always done and we do how we've been trained. Also, I do think there was a cost issue at one time when ferrosamide was generic and torsamide was not. However, these are both old drugs now. And per good RX, as I mentioned previously, down here in good old Tampa, Florida, they differ by about a dollar fifty which is really a bargain when you're looking at the cost of a hospitalization. So what a bargain.
5: Hey, Andrew, this evidence is really compelling, you know, and it's not often in medicine that you have like a total light bulb moment where somebody completely blows your mind. But this really has because I always thought there was only furosemide and it was the hill I was going to die on. But This is encouraging me to consider torsemide for my patients, and I'm definitely going to look into it further. But before I let you go, could you please sum this all up for us?
7: All right, to summarize. For multiple reasons, such as a decrease in bioavailability with food intake or a shorter half-life, as well as limitations in trials to improve patient-oriented outcomes such as hospitalizations, dyspnea, and death, The use of furosemide likely makes us, the provider, feel comfortable because it's what we've always done, but we should consider switching diuretics, especially in those patients who seem to continuously need readmission or rehospitalization for heart failure. I certainly have changed my practice, and I have encouraged others to do the same. These drugs all cost about the exact same, and if we can prevent even one or two hospitalizations, we have made a huge change for the patient sitting in front of us.
5: Well said, well said, my friend. So go forth and prescribe your torsamide. <laughs>
7: That's right, I agree with that. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, I mean, you may wanna see if your hospital actually has torsamide first. That's a, that would be a good place to start. <laughs>
9: Okay, Misa you're minding your own business when all of a sudden you're in the urgent care and in comes an eight-year-old, sick, wheezing. Looks like they might have anaphylaxis. What the hell am I supposed to do?
10: (laughs) Well, first of all, anaphylaxis is one of those diagnoses, Mel, that I have so much healthy, robust respect for. It can be scary as all get out. But this is something that you need to act very quickly. And even, you know, in the UC, it's literally you need to eyeball that kid or patient at any age. I don't care how busy you are. I don't care what else is going on. Anaphylaxis is kind of one of those, it may take you five seconds, but I want to quickly take a look and make sure that you're not dealing with something that's truly, you have minutes or seconds to interact with. So, yeah. So this kid comes in, eight-year-old is brought in by mom and she says, you know, he got stung by a bee. It's his first time ever being stung by a bee before she noticed he developed a little bit of a rash on his arm and it started moving up towards his chest. Now his whole face looks blown up. He looks like Quasimodo, and his (laughs) lips are swollen, and his eyes are nearly shut. She says, you know, he has a history of asthma. He started wheezing, so I gave him some albuterol before he came in, but it's not getting better. And I'm looking at the clock like, when did this happen? Ah, About an hour and a half before arrival. So really the first question is, does this kid need higher level of care? The answer is probably yes. But before you're calling 911 or as you're telling your clerk to call 911, there are still things that we are responsible for doing.
9: Absolutely. If you don't get things busy right now, this kid could be dead before 911 gets there.
10: And I think one of the subtle things about anaphylaxis, and I hear this all the time, often the nurses will say, but their vital signs are good. I'm like, yeah, I don't (laughs) care. Their vital signs are going to be good until they're not. So you don't want to wait for hypoxia or you don't want to wait for hypotension before you interject or interact here. So. Really, the first question is, is there airway involvement, yes or no? Do they need epi yes or no before you sort of move forward? But Mel, let's take a step back and let's just talk about allergic reactions in general, right? We know that they present on a spectrum. It can be anything from Mm -hmm. what we see all the time in the urgent care, which is simple urticaria, right? They come in, they have wheels and hives migrating. It freaks patients out. That's a very different algorithm, right? We know to treat those with PO meds, a little bit of reassurance, try and stop the agent that's irritating them, and you send them on their merry way. And for the most part, they go home versus mild, moderate allergic reaction, which can be a little bit of wheezing, a little bit of airway involvement, maybe nausea and vomiting, and all the way to severe anaphylaxis and then even anaphylactic shock. And the truth is just like everything else in urgent care, all of these patients will walk into your UC. Absolutely. <laughs> they, they don't know. have self
9: triage. <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm probably going to stop my progression at the urticaria. No, you're not. You're going all the way to airway emergency.
10: And to be fair, (laughs) sometimes patients have no idea because it does rapidly progress. And I think that's where that healthy respect that I have for this disease process—it is so scary and can change literally in front of your eyes. And the allergy immunology community doesn't really help with this, right? On an academic level, we look at the diagnostic criteria of how do we define anaphylaxis. The AAAI, the triple AI, the allergy asthma and immunology organizations will tell you their definition of what anaphylaxis is is extremely complex. By the time you're done reading it, your patient is dead. <laughs> so I like to keep this and teach this very simply. Like, is there airway involvement? Is there breathing involved? And is there circulation involved? So ABCs. So let's, let's start with that. You ready?
8: Ready. Airway.
10: So this kid walks in what's the first thing you want to check for is airway, right? So you're looking for signs of strider. Do they have signs of angioedema? I actually like to have the kid open their mouth. If they're old enough, take a look. See if the tongue is, you know, completely obstructing their mouth. Can you see the posterior oropharynx? Those kinds of things. Breathing. Next thing B, breathing. Are they wheezing? Do they have any respiratory distress? Are they coughing? Those are all signs of, yes, breathing is somehow compromised. You need to intervene.
8: Circulation.
10: And then C, you know, this is sort of a later finding, but shock, hypotension, cyanosis, those are things that you don't really want to be waiting around for. And if they meet A, B, C, or A, or B, or C, any one of those, to me, done. Epi, 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 and we'll talk about that in a minute.
9: Yeah, we should uh, say something right now, which is people are afraid of epi, you should not be. Epi was designed by God Mm -hmm. for this disease.
10: (laughs) It was. And it's funny. I think Swami was the one that said, you know, epi never made anyone's heart or brain explode. And that's true. It is the safest medication. And even, let's say, worst case scenario, I've given epi, 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 epi drip and actually caused an end in a, you know, overweight 60-something-year-old guy one time. But he was dying. So what's going to kill him now versus what's going to, you know, potentially harm him later? So risk versus benefit, epi all the way. And to your point, even those of us you know, experienced or junior physicians, clinicians, apps in the world, we are still reticent to
9: use it, and it's something. It's a mental block. Like you don't want to admit that they're that sick, right? And um, every study that's looked at this, looked at even um, mild to moderate anaphylaxis, says we do not give enough Epi. We don't today. We're still like having patients fairly sick, giving them some H one blockers, H two blockers, steroids, when really we should be giving them Epi. Even urticaria. There's a lot of people that believe even urticaria should be treated with Epi. Agree.
10: So I think a good habit to get into is every time one of these patients present, because let's think about this too, this eight-year-old could be multiple things, right? It could be anaphylaxis. That's your biggest number one killer that you want to rule out. It could also be angioedema. There's pediatric angioedema as well. Could it be other weird things like infectious, you know, croup? Could it be a foreign body? Let's say the kid was younger. Sure, it could be all those potential things in your differential. But really, the question is, do you need to intervene? Do you need to have your clerk calling 911 911? And are you asking your nurse to pull up the uh, epi from the Pyxis? I think a couple of words here about the exam as well, especially in the pediatric patient population. It's one thing this kid's eight. You know, you can talk to them. You can ask them to open up their mouth. What if he was two, right? Or what if he's 18 months old? This is one area that I do want us to be very uh, cognizant of in terms of how you rush into that room and (laughs) examine If you have a kid with a compromised, potentially compromised airway, and let's say they're leaning forward, tripoding, you hear some, (gasps) they're stridorous. You really do want to be careful not to lose that airway and make situations worse. So I would for sure be calling 911. But really, when you're examining them, it's about going slow, keeping them on mom's lap. Don't piss them off. Don't Mm -hmm. stick a tongue blade into their mouth trying to rack them open to look the posterior oropharynx. Oftentimes, I'll just take my stethoscope, stand away from them. Or sit lower than mom, kind of lift my stethoscope about five inches away from their mouth, and just close my eyes and listen. And I'm really just listening for some for some stridor or wheezing there. Mel, how much epi are we going to give?
9: I don't know. What's the <laughs> dose? How big is this kid? Uh, there's pediatric uh, epipens and there's adult epipens. Please help me. This is why I'm here.
10: Right. So, like everything else in uh, acute care, sometimes like this is not the time to do math. Right. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> so let's keep it really easy. So. Kids, and we're talking two to, let's say, twelve. Like the average kiddo, 0.15 milligrams. I am okay, and you're going to double that for adults. 0.3 milligrams. I
9: am. I love the way you simplified that.
10: <laughs> it's simple. We're going to talk about some nuances there, but let's back up for a minute. I think one of the biggest pitfalls is that sometimes you see a sick anaphylaxis and you think, "Oh, we should just start an IV, mm-hmm. right? Let's let's just go." I know we don't do that all the time in the urgent care, but this kid's going to need. An IV, let's start an IV, or this adult is gonna need it. Don't waste your time with the IV. Give the IM first. If you think he really needs an IV, fine, you can do that later. But mucking around, trying to start an IV is not, this is not the time. Then the question is well, do I give it? I am epi, or why can't I give it sub-Q? And they've actually looked at this, and it's noted that so peak concentrations of epinephrine are reached at 8 minutes when it's given IM, and 34 minutes when it's given subcutaneous. But 34 (laughs) minutes is not You don't have 34 minutes. Hey, can you hold your breath
9: for 34 (laughs) minutes? Not happening.
10: Right? Right? Particularly in the UC when, I mean, you've got to get this person out of your shop and up to higher level of care. You don't have that time to wait. So, you're going to tell your nurse and be very specific. I want to give this many milligrams, and you're going to give it IM. And where are you going to give it? I'm going to give it in the uh, lateral
9: part of the thigh. That's right. You know why? <laughs> because that's what you told me to do.
10: <laughs> the anterior lateral thigh. Yeah, the upper outer thigh. Why? I don't know. You know, I think interestingly, I used to think that it's because that's where you would be able to self administer mm-hmm. easily. And that's probably part of it. You can do it through your clothes. But again, Maximum concentrations are noted of epi to be reached seven times faster in the thigh compared to the deltoid.
9: Now, actually, was reading the notes. I know. Mm -hmm. I read ahead. I cheated. And I read that. And that's actually the first time I've ever heard that. Yeah. I just assumed we did it for those reasons. You put it there because it's a big, giant muscle. that usually is not too much subcutaneous fat. And giving yourself a deltoid injection would be hard. Yeah. But then to find out it's actually better. Yeah. Tastes great. Less filling. Right. Boom.
10: Less painful too. It has to be due to, I don't actually know the pathophys for that.
9: It's got to be the femoral arteries though, don't you think? It's got to be highly vascular or something. Yeah. We're not. We don't Forget about the pathophysiology. (laughs) Stick it in the leg.
10: Stick it in the leg (laughs) and stick it in quickly. All right. So then the whole, like, this is where things get confusing is that concentration, right? The darn concentration of epi. And remember that standard auto-injectors, so the Epi Pen, essentially, comes with a concentration of 1 to a 1,000. So that's what we're talking about here. And if you're drying it up in a vial, that's fine. Most of us do that in the clinical setting. (coughs) Again, so this average adult, 0.3 milligrams IM. For the average kiddo,
9: above 2, under 8, 0.15 milligrams. Those of you that are listening intently will note that we actually said 12 at the beginning, and now we're saying 8. And actually, if you look up multiple references, you'll find that it's all over the place when it comes to age recommendations for dosing. And that's because we don't really care about the age, do we care about the weight? And so different people use different ages as an estimation of weight. So you will find that it's a bit all over the place. But even that is kind of silly because magically, once you come out of one age group, then you double it from 0.15 milligrams to 0.3. So magically, the day after the birthday, whether it's 8, 10, 12, you magically give them twice as much. What that shows you is that epinephrine is pretty safe and that you can double the dose at the next birthday. So basically, look more at the size of this kid or this adult, and that will help you with dosing. You can have quite big 8-year-olds and quite tiny 12-year-olds. So in general, if they're small, you're going to start with 0.15 milligrams. And for adults or big kids, you're going to start at 0.3 milligrams. I am.
10: Now, I want to point out a couple of special patient populations that we don't actually talk about a lot. And that's, what if you have a little, little kid, like under 10 kilos? What about them? You're not going to give a three-month-old the same dose as a two-year-old. So if they're under 10, so just think, if they're a really young kid, stop for a minute, grab your calculator, look up the epidose, and the actual correct calculation is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram. Okay, so if you think, oh God, it's a little bit of a smaller kid, or it's a baby, stop for a minute, maybe you need to be giving less than 0.15. I actually had this case not that long ago, I said maybe nine months ago, I had a nine-month-old roll in, clearly anaphylaxis. And I right before I was about to give the 0.15, I was like, hold on, that sounds like a big (laughs) dose." So look it up. The other issue we have, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, is larger patients. We have a lot of patients that are rather large, over 80 kilograms. And giving someone who's, let's say, 60 kilos versus 100 kilos, obviously, is probably going to be a suboptimal dose. So you can go up as high as 0.5 milligrams I am in those larger patients.
9: So you can see already a pretty simple drug like epinephrine. We've got doses all over the place here. This is a good reminder, but in most circumstances, if you've got time, you wanna look this stuff up. You should not rely on your memory. Go to Corpendium, for example, and pull up the anaphylaxis bit and the, the bit on epinephrine dosing and follow that. This is just sort of ballpark for emergencies when you can't even do that, but in general, Always look up the dose for drug. Do not rely on your brain.
10: Yes, the chapter in Corpendium is called Allergy Hypersensitivity and Anaphylaxis. This is a fantastic section by Christina Toop and section editors, Dr. Dubs, Swadron. Go and review this because for sure it gives you great details on uh, how to manage this. And I pull it up right there at the bedside and you can quickly have that information. So apart from the dose, you know, we just said 0.15 for kids, 0.3 for the average Adult, and then a little higher up to 0.5 for the bigger adults, a little smaller for the little, little guys. What about needle size, Mel? If you have a really large patient... Use a bigger needle. Use a bigger <laughs> needle. <laughs> so you can go up to 1.5 inches to penetrate through that subcutaneous tissue. That makes sense. And then the last thing I want to mention is what about those pregnant patients? It's rare, mm-hmm. thankfully, but remember, if especially if they're very gravid in that sort of third trimester, remember to just like everything else in pregnancy, you want to offload that uterus off of the aorta. So shift the patient to her left lateral side uh, as you're giving the epi. You always want to treat mom just like you would if she wasn't pregnant. So yes, epi safe in pregnancy because if you don't keep mom alive, baby's not going to survive. But make sure to offload that
9: uterus to the left. And what about repeat dosing? So I ran in there and I gave the dose and it's 10 minutes later and the kid's not looking that much better.
10: First decision making in the UC is do they need epi, yes or no? And the answer for sure is a resounding yes. And even when you think it's no, you should think twice because you probably do need to give in, right? <laughs> you're wrong. You're wrong. And at that point, if you're thinking this patient needs epi, the question is, do you need to 911 them out or not? That's really going to be dependent on your shop. Some people are like, I feel comfortable giving epi, maybe some adjunct therapies we'll talk about in a minute. Watch them here for an hour and decide. Then there's other patients that come in really at that last, last sort of minute before they stop breathing. Those patients, you're not going to have a chance. You're going to give them epi. You're going to for sure send them out via 911. So this is all sort of situational. Also, your comfort level, what time is your... If this patient comes in 15 minutes before you're closing, you know, there's a lot of pragmatic parts to this. But for sure, if I'm ordering IM epi, I'm already asking the nurse, please drop my second dose because you're likely going to need that one depending on the severity.
9: The other thing I try and get out of the history is, is this the first time they've had this? A lot of these patients have peanut allergies or something that's well known and you just get a quick history and like how many times do you usually have to get epi before this is under control and they say oh three times right and I've been intubated five times right. I'm like yeah you're you're out of here <laughs> yeah. buddy yeah. Uh, yeah. but some of them will say oh just usually one hit with the epi pen and I'm fine right um, I just didn't have I didn't have an epi pen that's yeah. why I came yeah and so that's a person I'd be like oh you look pretty good we'll give you the shot we'll watch you for an hour or so you're good same as it's always been? Okay, yeah. I'll send that person on.
10: I agree, the stay and play, right? You stay and play versus get them out. It's such a good point about asking. So the question is, well, when can I give the second dose of epi, maybe even the third dose of epi, safely? And really, if there's no significant improvement, and I don't leave that patient's bedside, so I don't know about you, Mel, but I don't leave that patient for at least five minutes till I know that epi's working, and I'm constantly like, how do you feel? <laughs> Does he, is it going to make your throat, you know, whatnot? or until EMS has arrived. And so you can give that second epi within five minutes of the first one. And do not be afraid to give it, certainly, uh, like you said, because we are typically
9: underdosing these patients anyway. Most of the time, you know, the most common scenarios, you give it, and it's amazing. It's the most fun thing because they get better in front of you. Uh, But just know, repeat dosing is often needed. Don't wait too long. Don't wait half an hour. No. Five or 10 minutes, just like you, I'm there at the bedside because I don't know which way this is going. Is this the good patient that's going to get better? Yeah. Or the bad patient that's going to get
10: worse? I had an 18-year-old in my UC last year who walked in. She had just been prescribed Bactrom from the UC provider the day before for a UTI, right? Right. She walks in. (laughs) And literally within five minutes, I could see the back of her oral pharynx. After I gave epi, she started complaining that she was getting a little anxious. And I had told her and warned her, and that's a, a note as well. You want to remind patients or tell patients that that's eh, going to make you feel a little fluttery and, you know, nervous. And so she started getting a little bit dramatic. And I wasn't sure if it was her being just anxious from what was happening versus something really bad. And sure enough, I had her open up her mouth again and suddenly... Couldn't see any poster olafranchs oh, at all. So it was off to the races, second epi, third epi. Thank God, EMS arrived and called ahead to the ED to give them a heads up that she's going to need to be intubated on arrival. So these things can happen very quickly in front of you. So yeah, be ready to give it. Hopefully you're not often in the situation, but it does happen.
9: So that's a good review of epinephrine. But what else? What about all these other things that we've been taught about what to give?
10: Yeah, and this is what's funny is that our sort of brain wants to go to these, what I consider adjunct therapies first. Like we're like, oh, they need steroids and oh, they need an H1, H2 blocker. But the reality is we know that these take minutes to hours to take Mm -hmm. effect, right? It can be 30, 40 minutes, maybe two hours later. So Let's talk about them. But these should all be subsequent to epi first. So now you can consider giving these orally. You can give them IM. You can give them IV. And the doses will be in the show notes.
9: This is definitely one of those times where you've got plenty of time now to look up these doses because these are not going to work in a second or in a minute like epinephrine. So you can just go look at the doses. Exactly. So steroids. I always do H1 blocker, H2 blocker, and some steroids. Yep. I do H1 and H2 because there are some studies that say that both of them work in slightly different fashion, and so adding the two is good.
10: Yep, exactly. So with steroids, you have a couple of different options. Again, this is going to be dependent on what you have in stock at your shop. My personal preference is dexamethasone, 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per kilo. I actually like to give the IV version orally because it tastes better, and uh, it's a one-time dose, and you're done for 72 hours. You don't have to repeat it. That, especially for kids, is key because trying to wrangle them with oral prednisolone, which tastes Terrible is a nightmare for parents. You can also give methylprednisolone, 125 milligrams, IV or PO or IM, and then hydrocortisone, two to four milligrams per kilo. And again, all these dosages will be in corpendium as well. H1 blocker, Mel. What's your favorite H1
9: blocker? Here <laughs> only. H1 I don't <laughs> know any H1 blockers except <laughs> diphenhydramine, Benadryl, right. in this country. That's all I got.
10: And the average dose for the adult is about right, 50 milligrams. Mm-hmm. If they're over 12, or uh, you know, you can give about 25 to 50 milligrams. Remember, it's going to be pretty sedating. For the little guys, 2 to 11, the dose is 1 to 2 milligrams per kilo, obviously with a max dose of that 50 milligrams. So the only issue with this that I've found in the UC for the mild-moderate folks is that if they're driving home and I don't think they really need the diphenhydramine, then I do give the steroids and everything else, and I'll sort of give them a script for the diphenhydramine and tell them to take it when they get home.
9: Yeah, it's um, a little paradoxical in my experience. Some people get deeply sedated from these normal doses, True. and other people like, what? Didn't yeah. even feel it, so. And
10: sometimes you'll have kids who have like a paradoxical Parado- hyper-reaction. <laughs> <Yeah>, that's <laughs> you right. <laughs> you promise the parents that they'll be <laughs> napping and suddenly, you know, little Johnny's wrecking the room. H2 blocker, famotidine, 20 to 40 milligrams in adults. And for kids, it's one milligram per kilo. The max of 20 milligrams, pretty straightforward. And then respiratory support, you know, this is the question is like, does albuterol or racemic epi help? You know, I think it can't hurt depending on how bad. If you think you have really like an upper airway obstruction issue, I'm a big racemic epi fan. You can give 2.25% neb and you can certainly give that directly to the poster oral franks and give im epi while you're waiting for ems to arrive if it's lower down in the lower airway and the kids wheezing or adults wheezing certainly can give a albuterol neb if you have time give it why not
9: what about fluids mel how do you feel about fluids vast majority of people don't need it but if they're in that shock part of things uh, they can third space enormously i mean if you Look at the kid and his face looks like uh, a watermelon. Yeah, That fluid came from somewhere. Yeah. That came from the intravascular space right. to the extravascular space. Yep. So if they're at all down, then I give them fluid. I just give them normal-selling bolus, 500 mils, and then do it again if you need to. But they can become profoundly shocky yeah. um, in these the severe cases. Yeah.
10: You see it more in adults for some reason, but I agree. 500, you can give two liters wide open right up front. Be generous, be aggressive. In kids, you can start with that initial bolus of 20 to 30 cc's per kilo and repeat it every, you know, 10 minutes as needed. Okay, so let's talk about Dispo Mel, because this is always our our biggest sort of state of play. Send them out, send them home. What do we do with this kid? I think it really depends, right? So let's say this kid, you decided to give Epi. He improves right in front of you. You give the rest of the cocktail. What are you doing with that kiddo?
9: If it's first time, if I've got a clear cause of this, the social situation is good. I'm happy most of the time to do a little training. Here's how an epipen works. You should go see an allergist, but I'm going to watch that kid for a while. How often do they get better and then get worse? Is actually quite rare. We have some good studies on this. That's it's actually quite rare after a couple of hours that they're going to get worse again. So don't you know the epinephrine doesn't hang around for a long time. If you've got them there for an hour and they're completely fine, it's very unlikely they're going to get worse. But I Mm. would teach mum, kid, how to use an epipen because I don't know if this is a one-off or if this is the beginning of a lifelong dream of having. Recurrent anaphylaxis.
10: And you bring up a really important point. You're talking about rebound anaphylaxis, right? That theory that we used to think that, oh my God, we have to observe this person for six hours, (laughs) right? right, Is what we all used to do. And the truth is, to your point, it's rare. It can happen, but it can happen up to like three, four days later. So you're not going to watch that person for three, four days. Get
9: a snack. You're going to be here for a while, buddy.
10: (laughs) Here's a blanket. Okay, so that kid's going home. What about the moderate to severe one? The one you've given Epi to... You've given oral adjunct therapies to, they're still looking a little punky. What are you doing with them?
9: It totally depends on your situation. And um, for a lot of people, I think that's an emergency department visit now. They'd have to hang out for a while. But it depends on your system. If you're an urgent care attached to an emergency department in a hospital, you might just keep that person with you for the day. It all depends on your circumstances. But these people are obviously a bit more anxiety-producing. I think the people that get better fast, I'm not too worried about. The people that don't get better fast, I worry about.
10: This is also a really important point. People always want to know, well, can I go by personal vehicle? And I think this is one of those unique situations in the UC where the answer is absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) You're going 911, and preferably you're requesting ALS when you're calling them, not BLS, because if, God forbid, they need a second or third EPI or even airway intervention, you're going to want ALS to be managing that. And... I am calling the ED that they're going to ahead of time. I find out, you know, where they're going and at least
9: speaking to uh, the triage doc there on staff so that they can prepare to intubate this patient on arrival. So me sticking in an IV, starting an epidrip and putting them in a car and say, drive yourself to the hospital, (laughs) I shouldn't be doing that? No, it's probably not.
3: Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) Take home points. All
10: right, so let's bring it home. Anaphylaxis, diagnosis, how do we keep this simple, Mel?
9: I don't know, uh, but... Don't be afraid of epinephrine. If somebody has got even just urticaria, like there are literally immunologists say the treatment of urticar, acute urticaria is epinephrine. So if mm-hmm. they're saying that for that, if it's yep. anything more than a bit of urticaria, <laughs> I'm giving you epinephrine. Everyone's <laughs> getting epi. Yeah,
10: you get an everyone's epi for you, epi for you. Yeah, airway, breathing, circulation for sure needs epi, maybe multiple doses of epi. But to your point, if urticaria requires epi, then we are not giving this enough. And I include myself in that. So get over your sort of mental hurdle. Don't waste your time starting an IV for other treatments. Epi is really the only life-saving medication for anaphylaxis. So don't muck around. Don't waste time. For severe cases, your colleagues will appreciate that call ahead to the ED that they will need an Epidrip because the Epidrip takes a little while, right, for pharmacy to put together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, Corpendium does have a nice little, it's called the dirty Epidrip. Yes. So if you're out in a remote place where it, it is going to be an hour before you can get transport, Look that bad boy up because it's a way for you to be able to zhuzh a liter of saline with some epi and make your own dirty epi drip if you're in a crazy situation. It's a fantastic
9: chapter. In fact, I wrote it.
10: You did? <laughs> <laughs> I should have known that, I guess. <laughs>
9: I love that. Um, I should say one thing about it. We, we've We've sort of said epinephrine's fine, fine, fine. Now, like any medication there, it can be side effects. So if you've got a 92-year-old who had an MI last week mm-hmm. who's got a little load of care, probably not going to give them epinephrine. Right. But anything beyond the mildest of symptoms... The cost-benefit is always in Epi's favor, except under extraordinarily weird situations.
10: Yeah. And again, if that person's coming in with a, uh, about to stop breathing, then you don't really have a choice. Don't care. You'll, you'll deal with their heart attack later. Yeah. Exactly. Beware of those special patient populations, those little, little guys, the little peds patients, and also the very large adults, also pregnant women, move that uterus to the left. And my biggest pet peeve, don't rely on those normal vital signs, but their saturation is 100%. <laughs> because they're not dead yet (laughs) give the epi please
9: (laughs) fantastic
10: this has gotten my heart right up Mel thank you Mm it's been fun
5: joined once again this month by everybody's favorite Australian primary care obstetrician and generalist Dr. Penny Wilson. Good to see you Penny. Hi Heidi, it's good to be back again. How's life on the other side of the world?
11: Yeah, it's great down the other side of the world, you know, the toilet flushes in the in the correct direction again. So, <laughs> I'm happy to be back.
5: A little while ago, you and I chatted about an approach to choosing oral contraceptives for patients, and now you're back to talk about managing complications regarding the contraception. So we're glad to have you here because we not infrequently see people who have issues with their contraception.
11: Yeah, so in the last topic, we spoke about having, you know, two or three pills that you would choose to prescribe for patients and getting comfortable with those. But then what do you do when the patient comes back and says, oh, this one that you prescribed me is causing me these problems? So it'll be good to have a bit of a run through how you deal with the complaints that come up after starting a contraceptive pill or other option.
5: I would say that the most common complaint I see is problematic bleeding.
11: Yes, and this can happen with any type of contraception is the bleeding can be wacky or heavy or... Irregular, unpredictable, or light or anything. So those people who have light or absent bleeding don't usually consider it a problem, but that can happen as well. But yeah, let's run through the clinical assessment of those patients with problematic bleeding. Okay, sounds good. It's going to depend a little bit on how old they are, if it's a new contraception for them or if they've been using it for a while. You want to check if they're using it properly. Like, are they remembering to take the pill or are they getting their depo injection at the right time? Do they have any other types of symptoms, like red flag symptoms or other risk factors? Are they at risk of STIs? Is their cervical screening up to date? Could they be possibly pregnant? And we also want to think about underlying pathologies such as endometrial hyperplasia, fibroids, and and other things that could be causing bleeding.
5: Now, assuming your initial assessment is unremarkable, what's your approach then? What do you do about it?
11: Yeah, so sometimes we can be pretty reassured by a low-risk history, and other times we want to get an ultrasound to reassure us that there's nothing untoward going on in the pelvis. But if everything's looking good there, then most of the time we can actually just wait and see. The first few months after starting any new contraception can be a settling-in period, And that tends to be when the bleeding is the most troublesome and typically improves after three to six months.
5: I usually tell my patients that all bets are off for the first couple of months when they start contraception.
11: Yeah. And certainly setting those expectations can be pretty important to make sure that they're not surprised when that happens. Yeah.
5: Now, what if your patient is taking the combined oral contraceptive pill?
11: Hmm. So, we talked last time about how for most people we're going to be using a monophasic pill. Some people would think, oh, maybe if I use a triphasic pill, then that might be better for bleeding, but it doesn't seem to be the case. So, I would still stick with a monophasic pill, even if people have problematic bleeding. But I would want to consider increasing the estrogen dose. So, a low dose might be 20 or 30 micrograms of ethanol estradiol. So, we might increase them up to the higher end, like 30 to 35 micrograms. And there's not really good evidence that any one pill is better than another in terms of the type of hormones, but estradiol or estradiol valerate type estrogens may be better for bleeding for some people, whether that's because of the type of estrogen or if it's because they are formulated with a shorter pill-free interval. It's not clear, but for some people that type works better as well. For other people, a vaginal ring may be better than a pill. And then if all of those options are exhausted, then you can, of course, look for a completely different option like a levonogastral IUD.
5: Now, I see the occasional patient whose bleeding is regular, but very painful and very heavy. And they're just interested in having fewer withdrawal bleeds or really not having any periods at all. How do you recommend helping them?
11: Hmm. So it's actually fine to not have periods if you're taking the pill. So some people sort of believe that it's, it's healthier to have a regular period, but that's actually not true. You can go for extended periods without. And so if you're taking a regular combined pill, you can just take the packets back to back without taking the pill-free or placebo break and just keep taking the active tablets one after the other. And there's also some types of pills that are marketed like that or packaged like that where they have three months of continuous pills all in the same packaging. But that's a good way for people to have fewer periods and they can also control when they have their withdrawal bleeds by doing that. So they can either have a scheduled withdrawal bleed like every three to four months or they can wait until they start having some breakthrough bleeding. So sometimes we advise people if they have four days of breakthrough bleeding, take a four-day break from the active pills and then start them back up again. And that tends to work pretty well for most people.
5: What if the patient is taking the progestin-only pill? Does that change your approach?
11: Yeah, that is more difficult to manage because it uh, may not settle with time. So if people do have problematic bleeding with it, it can persist. In North America, there's only one progestin-only pill available as far as I know, the norothindrone one. So my friends in North America, you're a little bit stuck with your options there if if you can't use an estrogen. But in other parts of the world, there are other types of mini pills that have levonogestrel or desigestrel or drospirinone in them. And they could be tried as an alternative just to see if their bleeding is a bit better. And I think the desigestrel and drospirinone do tend to have better bleeding generally because they're progestin formulation is a little bit longer acting as well. Now, progestin
5: contraception of course doesn't only come in pill form. We can have patients on depot injections, with implants or or an IUD, and they can still run into difficulties with uh, with bleeding then. How do we help these patients?
11: Yeah, this is actually a really interesting one because that is Again, the most common complaint that people will have is that particularly in those first few months, they'll get some irregular bleeding as their depot or their IUD is settling in. But you can, in fact, use a combined contraceptive pill with a progestin implant injection or IUD or, in fact, a combined pill or a combined vaginal ring. And so you're kind of using the LARC, the long-acting IUD or implant or whatever, for your contraceptive benefits, and then you're using your combined pill for your bleeding management. And you may only need to do that for three or six months until your progesterone is settling in and then stop the combined pill. So that's a neat little trick that um, actually is pretty helpful for that early phase. Now, when I think of bleeding and
5: contraception, I think of the copper-based IUDs because a lot of patients' periods get quite a bit heavier if they're using that for contraception.
11: Yeah. Bleeding and pain is the most common complaint with the copper IUD. It is good, though, for people who are sensitive to hormone side effects, so it certainly does have its place. But if people are having heavy bleeding with it, you can also use it concurrently with a hormonal method like the COCP, the combined pill. But also remember that there are non-hormonal ways of reducing bleeding. So things like NSAIDs, tranexamic acid can certainly be used during the period to reduce the amount of bleeding, regardless of the type of contraception. So bleeding
5: is probably the biggest reason our patients have questions and concerns about their contraception. But I see a lot of people with symptoms that uh, trace back to the hormonal side effects of these meds.
11: Yes, absolutely. So there are a few different variations of that theme. So one would be breast tenderness or nausea, typically related to the dose of the either the estrogen or the progestin, and this typically improves after a few months. But another strategy would be to use a lower dose of either the estrogen or the progestin component. Another one that people will complain of frequently would be headache. Now that can just be a, a kind of regular type of headache, or it may be a migraine type headache. And if the migraine-type headaches get worse with the hormonal contraception, then you generally want to reduce or stop that altogether and change to a progestin-only method, remembering that classic migraine with aura is a complete contraindication to estrogen-containing contraception. But a common migraine without aura that gets worse is also a bit of a red flag there.
5: What about uh, androgenic side effects? I see the occasional person who's worried about developing acne.
11: Yeah. Again, this often improves after a few months, so that's a bit of a recurring theme, is just sit tight and wait and see what happens. But for um, combined pill users, consider changing them to a more anti-androgenic type of progestin, such as cyproterone acetate or drospirinone. Or you can use non-hormonal acne treatments like your topical gels and things like that with your regular pill. Now, let's talk about weight gain. We've
5: all had patients come in and say, I have gained 20 pounds since I started this birth control pill. What is the real scoop on weight gain and contraception?
11: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people for sure report that they gain weight while taking their hormonal contraceptives. But of course, a lot of people who aren't on hormonal contraceptives also experience weight gain. That's just a kind of normal thing that happens to people over time. And the evidence actually doesn't support a strong link between hormonal contraceptive use and weight gain, with one exception, and that's the depot medroxyprogesterone in younger patients, particularly those who are already overweight or obese. So there is a link there, but otherwise it's not proven. It's just kind of coincidence. But one little side note there is that for some combined pill users, they can get a type of cyclical weight gain from fluid retention, in which case you could use A pill that has drospirinone in it, which has that anti mineralocorticoid action and tends to reduce fluid retention and bloating. So, that could be a tip there to try.
5: Hmm, Okay. Is there anything else to consider to help mitigate hormonal side effects?
11: Yeah. So, remember that the absorption of hormones is much less with IUDs compared to implants or injections because the hormone in the IUD tends to work locally in the uterus and has less systemic activity. So, that's an option to consider. And some patients are just exquisitely sensitive to any hormones, in which case, for some people, the copper IUD or, in fact, surgical sterilization is the way to go for an effective hormone-free option.
1: Recap.
5: Well, Penny, I feel like I have a much better handle on helping my patients manage potential complications from contraception. But before we're done here, can you give us just a little bit of a summary, what you need us to remember from this conversation?
11: I think the main summary is just wait, (laughs) wait a few months and see if it gets better. And that kind of applies to any complication or side effect that people might be having with their birth control or contraception. But you do, of course, want to do that initial assessment, particularly with abnormal bleeding, to make sure that there isn't something else more suspicious going on, like a pregnancy or an STI or an endometrial thickening. But other than that, you can do a bit of tinkering with doses or types of hormones like lowering or increasing the doses to see if you can get things a bit more settled for the patient.
5: Okay, perfect. That's wonderful. Thanks so much for lending us your expertise here and helping us all to become more comfortable with managing contraception complications.
11: Anytime.
9: Specialist's Corner.
0: Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi, and today we are launching something a little different here on Right on Prime. This is Specialist's Corner. Our plan is to have a roster of different specialists who will come and chat with us from time to time about topics of interest in their field. This is going to be a chance for us to pick their brains about new research and treatments, but also a chance for them to empower us, the family physicians. I don't know about you, but I much prefer calling a specialist when I have already done some of the work for a patient, when I have already ordered and hopefully received the results of at least a few of those tests, and when I have perhaps already eliminated certain disorders, or when I have done the first-line treatments and I need to know how to proceed. I really want to to use the specialists as consultants rather than just turfing everyone with a say kidney to the nephrologist and everyone with a stomach to the gi doc so let's use these sessions to learn about different diseases and treatments but also to learn how to best tee up our patients for a visit with a specialist what tests can we order ahead of time what treatments we can try first this is going to empower us and help promote independent practice and in family medicine as well as being a more efficient use of the patient and physician's time so on that note Please welcome to the show, Dr. Chadwick Williams. Now, before we get started, Chad, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
6: Yes, thanks, Vanessa. And thank you for inviting me uh, to this excellent podcast. It's a great forum. I am a gastroenterologist and an inflammatory bowel disease specialist, in fact, working out of Dartmouth General Hospital in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Currently, I'm the uh, Dartmouth General Hospital site lead with regard to internal medicine as well.
0: Well, thank you so much again for joining us. We are going to chat about a topic that is very near and dear to your heart namely IBD. But before we dive in, I just want to explain why this month's piece is a little bit different. Over on our sister show, MRAP, which is of course included in your Right on Prime subscription, you and I are actually chatting in the same month about caring for IBD patients in the emergency room, from when to pull the trigger and order a CT, to what the meds are for and how to treat the flares. And here on Right on Prime, we are going to continue that conversation into the outpatient setting, all with the goal of empowering the GPs to initiate workups and hopefully manage some IBD flares when it is appropriate to do so. So be sure to listen to the other segment as well over on MRAP to get that full experience. Now, for those of you who have already listened to the MRAP piece, this next minute or so might be a little bit repetitive. But if you think of it as spaced repetition, it's actually a genius teaching tool. Because what I'm going to ask Chad to do now is to just give us a quick overview of IBD and the difference between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. This is the only bit of repetition between the two pieces. So take it away, Chad.
7: Let's talk about IBD, let's talk about IBD, let's talk about
8: IBD, let's talk about What
1: are we talking about?
6: Great, thank you. So this is the crash course slash crash uh, review. So just to differentiate a bit between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So those are the two major diseases that make up inflammatory bowel disease. The diseases represent really important causes of morbidity and decreased quality of life for affected individuals. And unfortunately, these diseases are actually quite common, especially in this neck of the woods in North America. And by the way, the data would show that Nova Scotia is the hotspot on the planet with regard to inflammatory bowel disease. Crohn's disease can affect any segment of the GI tract, but often involves the ileocolonic region. It can be a transmural disease and uh, because it can affect multiple layers of the GI tract it can also be penetrating and lead to things like perianal uh, disease with perianal sepsis or intraabdominal abdominal fistulization as well with uh, intraabdominal abscesses. Ulcerative colitis on the other hand affects only the colon and it does not affect the small bowel. It starts in the rectum and can progress proximally in a confluent manner to involve other areas of the colon or uh, the entire colon. Both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis can be associated with various important extraintestinal manifestations of disease. So although we call them inflammatory bowel diseases, in truth, they're actually systemic diseases that affect the bowel. Crohn's disease often presents with diarrhea, abdominal pain, and anorexia and weight loss as cardinal features. Not all patients present with all of those symptoms, however. The most common clinical presentation for ulcerative colitis, on the other hand, is bloody diarrhea often without abdominal pain and without weight loss.
0: Okay, that was a great overview. Thank you. That's perfect. So now we're going to sort of set the stage a little bit, and let's imagine that we're in our family medicine office, and, you know, we're seeing patients on a regular basis. When should we suspect inflammatory bowel disease? When should we suspect this as a diagnosis?
6: Right. So I think I'll go over those um, symptoms again in a moment because I think those are important, although they may be present with, obviously, other disease states. But the first thing to realize is that there are really two peaks of incidence for inflammatory bowel disease. Number one. So the first peak is in individuals who are young. So adolescents out to, we guess, around the fifth decade, but usually we're talking about, you know, teenagers to the 30s are uh, typically what we're looking at. And then there's a second peak that is a bit smaller, but affects individuals who are a little longer in the tooth. Folks who are in their 50s and 60s, for instance. So we're looking at those two age groups. Number two. And then we have to refocus on the symptoms. So again, symptoms of chronic diarrhea, chronic abdominal pain, weight loss, anorexia. The anorexia, when you ask the patients about it, is often because they're finding that taking in food often exacerbates abdominal pain or exacerbates diarrhea. So they tend not to eat. With regard to ulcerative colitis, bloody diarrhea is the cardinal feature, and uh, sometimes it's the only thing that they complain about or that they describe. Extraintestinal manifestations are something to keep in mind as well. Not all individuals with inflammatory bowel disease will have extraintestinal manifestations at any one point in time, but a lot of them will have extraintestinal manifestations at some point during their disease course. And we estimate that those numbers may be anywhere from 40 to 60% of individuals with inflammatory bowel disease. So those manifestations include arthralgias, which is non-erosive, mouth ulcers, skin lesions such as pyoderma gangrenosum, uh, which can be you know, very uh, important and sometimes even limb-threatening uh, ulcerations of the skin. Erythema nodosum would be another important skin lesion. And ocular symptoms, which can be very important and can be vision-threatening with regard to uh, uveitis, for instance. And the last thing to keep in mind, again, with regard to when to suspect would be when individuals show up with perianal disease, fistulas, or perianal abscesses, again, in these age groups that we described, with or even without some of the symptoms that we were talking about earlier.
0: You mentioned that it's very common to see these extraintestinal manifestations with the abdominal symptoms, with the sort of GI symptoms. How often is it that we see the other way around, that they might be, you know, presenting with these mouth ulcers, which I guess is part of the GI tract, but, you know, eye symptoms, skin lesions, and then someone else is putting the pieces together and saying, oh, okay, this might be IBD, and their GI complaints are actually minimal.
6: That's a great question. So in the context of individuals who have inflammatory bowel disease with extraintestinal manifestations, it's interesting when they present with what. So it's not infrequent that they may actually present with the extraintestinal manifestations first. And, you know, I may get a referral from my rheumatology colleagues saying, there's this individual I've been following for several years with this inflammatory arthritis, and now they have GI symptoms. Can you see them? Because I think they have inflammatory bowel disease and they end up having that. So it's interesting and it's kind of funny because we call them extraintestinal manifestations and the rheumatologists sometimes call them, you know, call the GI manifestations extraarticular manifestations. So, you know, which came first is often uh, important, but we do see that. And and sometimes individuals will present with only the extra intestinal manifestation first and for a very long period of time before going on to develop any GI symptoms or inflammatory bowel disease.
0: Okay, so let's uh, go back to a clinical scenario where we're in our GP's office. You have a patient who's got a history that's pretty convincing for IBD. What do we need to do to diagnose this?
6: Well, I think the first bit is what you just mentioned. So you have a history that's pretty convincing for IBD, and oftentimes that is 70 to 80% of the work um, and the important stuff. The auxiliary stuff or the additional stuff is really um, more objective and can kind of help clinch the diagnosis, obviously. So blood work would be the first thing. I recommend getting a complete blood cell count, iron indices complete with ferritin, C-reactive protein, a blood marker for inflammation, and if possible in uh, your location, a fecal calprotectin would be very helpful as well, uh, a stool marker of inflammation. Imaging is uh, often very, very helpful, although again, we have to be careful not to image these individuals too often, but if we're talking about making a diagnosis, I think that imaging can be helpful. So in particular, small bowel imaging, Typically, it's most rapid and easiest to get a CT enterography at most institutions. CT, however, comes with the downside of radiation. And to get around that, if it's possible, other modalities would be preferred, such as MR enterography that doesn't come along with that radiation, or better yet, would be a newer modality or a newer modality to North America called small bowel intestinal ultrasound. It's something that uh, the Europeans have been using for decades now. It performs as well or better than our cross-sectional imaging for diagnoses of small bowel Crohn's disease, and can also be used to assess the colon for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. It can be done at point of care, and it has zero risk uh, with regard to radiation or other harms. And then lastly, of course, the gold standard would be endoscopy with biopsies showing chronic inflammatory changes to the gut.
0: I had a question about the fecal calprotectin. If it's something that we order, um, and you know, in the assumption that we might not get the results back quickly, but that the GI specialist will be able to see the results, how do you use the fecal calprotectin? Is it a one-off thing, or is that what you're using to measure flares in addition to a CRP?
6: The fecal calprotectin has multiple uses to the gastroenterologist. So the First level uh, is upstream. So it comes where we're trying to figure out whether the patient's symptoms are due to an inflammatory process or not. And there are good data showing that if an individual has a normal or near normal fecal calprotectin, the likelihood of their symptoms being due to inflammatory bowel disease is really close to zero. So that's the first indication is ruling out IBD versus IBS, for instance. The other great utility for it is once we already know that an individual has inflammatory bowel disease, but we can use that fecal calprotectin to follow them throughout their disease course. So what I mean by that is if a patient uh, has a fecal calprotectin at diagnosis and the fecal calprotectin is very high, we confirm the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease on endoscopy, and then we put them on a therapy that ultimately gets them into clinical remission and hopefully endoscopic remission, that's great. If that patient comes back later on in a year or two, describing some grumbling symptoms, but not quite as bad as they were before, that'd be a great time to get a fecal calprotectin to see if we have some early indication of uh, recurrent inflammation. And of course, it's non-invasive. So it can sometimes allow us to investigate patients without going uh, forward and uh, putting them through another colonoscopy.
0: Oh, I'm sure the patients are very grateful for that. Okay, so now let's move on to many of the treatments and some of the common side effects or interactions that we need to know about. I feel like this whole field has expanded a lot since I first learned about it in medical school and residency. So I'm going to name some of the you know, bigger categories, and then maybe you can give us a little rundown. So let's start with good old steroids. What do you have to say about them?
6: Uh, there's a lot to say about them, and I'll try to keep <laughs> it brief because there are a lot of other therapies, but steroids have been around for a long period of time. So I think it's important to realize that they have a really important place in the management of inflammatory bowel disease, but we want to try and use them infrequently and sparingly. So I like to try and liken steroid use to a fire extinguisher. So they're used to get the disease symptoms and inflammation under control rapidly. But they're not ideal for keeping the disease at bay over a long period of time. So they're not maintenance therapies they don't work very well to do that. And by the way, corticosteroid therapy comes with significant risks, as you well know, including risks for infection, osteoporosis, hyperglycemia, weight gain, mood change, cataracts, hypertension, avascular necrosis, the list goes on. So steroids definitely have their place, but we need to use them sparingly because they don't work well long term and they have significant side effect profile.
0: Okay. I love the image of the fire extinguisher. like. Go in there rapidly, helps get the situation under control, but uh, it's not a long-term fire safety plan. Okay. So next up would be the immunomodulators.
6: Great. So there are really two drugs currently in uh, the armamentarium that we use for inflammatory bowel disease that we classify as immunomodulators, azathioprine and methotrexate. Azathioprine is utilized in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, while methotrexate is only indicated in Crohn's disease. These therapies can be used as maintenance therapies. And so by definition, they're what we would call steroid sparing agents. Both agents are quite old. They've been around for a long time for multiple inflammatory disorders, and we've used them for Crohn's disease for a long period of time as well. They can be effective. I hesitate to say that they're not effective. It's just that they are far less effective than uh, some of the drugs that we'll speak about in a moment. The other important thing about the immunomodulators is that they come with some baggage in regards to adverse side effects, including important cytopenias, drug-induced pancreatitis. Um, So that goes for, the cytopenias are are what we would see with both azathioprine and methotrexate. The drug-induced pancreatitis is something that we see with azathioprine. Hepatitis, we can see with both of these drugs. The other really important but rarer uh, side effect from azathioprine would be lymphoma, something that we see more often in the young male uh, subset that we treat with the drug. But it is an important adverse risk that we uh, need to be aware of.
0: Okay, moving on to biologics.
6: Yeah, so this is a large category now. It wasn't always, and we didn't always have biologics. In fact, uh, the first biologic only came into the inflammatory bowel disease space around the late 1990s. And now we have an embarrassment of riches, so to speak. We're um, almost as lucky as those dermatologists and rheumatologists with all of their fancy biologics. There are several categories of these drugs, and we've started off with the anti-TNF agents. So those may be the ones that many folks are more aware of. They're utilized not just for inflammatory bowel disease, of course, but for a host of other inflammatory disorders. Names such as infliximab, adalimumab, and golumimab may sound familiar. So infliximab and adalimumab are used for both inflammatory bowel disease forms, so both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Golimumab is used only in ulcerative colitis. These drugs block TNF-alpha, which is an important cytokine in the inflammatory cascade, and that's how they work, by taking that particular cytokine out of the equation. They do have some important side effects, that, or potential side effects, I should say, that individuals should be aware of. And that includes demyelination, so they can actually degrade or remove the myelin from neurons, giving a presentation that may look very similar to multiple sclerosis. It's very, very uncommon, but uh, we always tell our patients to be aware of it and we need to watch for it. They can also cause reactivation of latent tuberculosis. So individuals going on these therapies need to have checks done for tuberculosis prior to starting these agents. Skin rash and arthralgias um, that look like a lupus-like reaction are uncommon, but we do see them, and we need to be aware of that. And then, obviously, because these drugs do interact with and modulate the immune system to an extent, certain types of infections are more common on them than off of therapy. Then, moving on from anti-TNF agents, there is another group of biologics known as the anti-integrin therapies. And the first one was actually called natalizumab. It's not regularly used in inflammatory bowel disease now because of a nasty infection that's been associated with it called PML. We sometimes do use it, though. The newer agent in this class is called vetalizumab. And these drugs are quite uh, interesting. So vetalizumab in particular is gut-specific, and it creates a blockade, whereas it uh, prevents the inflammatory white blood cells from leaving the bloodstream and going to gut tissue to cause inflammation. Because of its targeted approach, the side effect profile is quite favorable, and really there aren't many side effects to it. We have noticed that certain types of infections are more common on vetalizumab than off of vetalizumab, but again, a very safe option with regard to biologics. Another safe option is ustekinumab. So this is an anti-IL12-23 agent. The name that most people know it better by would be Stelera used in the dermatology space, of course, but now also used in Crohn's disease. This agent modulates the crosstalk or the way that the leukocytes, the inflammatory leukocytes, interact with each other to cause inflammation. And uh, it's, it's been quite effective in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. The side effect profile is very favorable. And in fact, in the clinical studies done in inflammatory bowel disease, the individuals who were on placebo were the ones that were more likely to have issues with regard to infections, and uh, poor outcomes with regard to side effects. So effective drug and uh, very safe. And then lastly, there's a new kid on the block, uh, the Janus kinase or JAK inhibitors. There's only one currently marketed for inflammatory bowel disease, and that drug is tofacidinib, better known as Zaljans. It's only indicated right now for ulcerative colitis, but there are other drugs in this class that are currently being studied. They're in phase three trials, and they will be coming to market within the next one to two years. Very exciting class of drug, small molecule, uh, not technically a biologic, and they act intracellularly to decrease inflammation in inflammatory bowel disease. Very effective and very rapidly effective. The one that's on the market now, tofacitinib, has uh, some baggage associated with it, however. Side effect profile, it is associated with higher rates of herpes zoster, so shingles. Ideally, we want to have individuals vaccinated against shingles prior to starting on this therapy. In other uh, groups, we've certainly found that infection rates are notable with regard to um, opportunistic infections, for instance. Hyperlipidemia has been identified. And then in certain uh, groups, such as the rheumatology uh, groups that this drug is also used in, there are higher risks of venothromboembolism and certain cardiac events. We haven't seen that play out in the inflammatory bowel disease space yet, but this drug is relatively new to inflammatory bowel disease.
0: That's exciting to hear that there are some new things out there that we can look forward to hearing more about and hopefully getting to use more. Hopefully, this VTE and cardiac events won't be uh, too big of a dissuasion and that we'll have some more tools in our tool belt. Thank you for that overview of all the medications. It reminded me of how complicated this is. and While we would like the easy fixes and be like, okay, let's throw some steroids. Obviously, long-term maintenance of patients um, requires a bit more of a nuanced approach. So thank you for that. And I know I'll be going back to listen to those overviews again. So let's say that we have a patient in our clinic who we suspected IBD. We even did some of the initial blood tests. When do we refer these patients? When do we uh, send them on to your guys?
6: Yeah, I think the short answer is I think these patients should be referred always and early, realizing that there are certain challenges, of course, with wait times. The reason why I say that they should always be referred to gastroenterology is, um, you know, we we were talking earlier about some of these really exciting therapies. The thing is, there are data uh, that we have now showing that if we can get individuals on safe and effective therapy earlier in the course of their disease, When their disease is predominantly inflammatory, we reduce the risk of them going on later on to develop really important complications of um, inflammatory bowel disease, such as strictures and fistulas and needs for surgeries and admissions and even malignancies. So, you know, the the quicker time to therapy, effective therapy, is really, really important. And so, in, in my view, I think they always need to be referred and ideally seen as soon as possible by gastroenterology.
0: Okay, perfect. And you already sort of mentioned this a second ago when we were talking about possible long-term complications. So what are some of those long-term complications that we should have our eye out for as their GP, whether it's from the disease itself or whether it's from the medications? Right. So I
6: think, fortunately, with regard to the the medications, especially the biologics that we have now, and uh, even with the uh, JAK inhibitors that are coming to the forefront, we um, don't yet see any long-term complications of the therapies. Of course, with some of our older therapies that we were talking about, so for instance, corticosteroid therapy, I do still have patients who are being referred to me who have been on corticosteroid therapy for long periods of time or who have been exposed to corticosteroid therapy multiple times during the course of their lifespan, and they already have some of the sequelae that come along with that. For instance, uh, they may have adrenal insufficiency associated with it, osteoporosis, and subsequent fractures, or even, you know, I have a couple patients in my practice who have had unfortunate avascular necrosis secondary to that. Not much in the way of uh, long-term risks with regard to the immunomodulators, except to say, I did mention with regard to azathioprine, there is the risk of lymphoma. There is also a risk of non-melanoma skin cancers with uh, azathioprine, so that would be an important one to be aware of. And then with regard to methotrexate, uh, long-term issues with regard to inflammatory lung changes, and uh, inflammation in the eyes. Apart from that, you know, the biologics, again, and uh, certainly the JAK inhibitors, they're newer uh, to the game, uh, but we don't yet see any long-term side effects um, from those drugs uh, per se. There are some important disease-related risks that we need to be aware of. I talked a bit about some of the short-term ones. So those would be, you know, development of fistulas and strictures in the setting of Crohn's disease. And oftentimes that leads to, you know, more heightened therapy and or uh, surgery. So we want to try and avoid that if we can by starting therapies earlier on. There is also a really important risk of malignancy, though, in inflammatory bowel disease, particularly with regard to colon cancer. So we know uh, from old studies and uh, not so old studies that individuals who have ongoing inflammation of their colon, so either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease affecting the colon, are at higher risk than the general population of developing colon cancer. And that risk generally takes off after the first decade of uh, diagnosis. So we need to be aware of that. And in fact, those individuals are screened more closely with colonoscopy to look for early signs or dysplasia before they go on to uh, actually develop a, a colon cancer. That's important. And then I will mention that there is another malignancy. It's a very special subset of inflammatory bowel disease. So some individuals with inflammatory bowel disease also have a biliary disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis or PSC. That group of individuals have an extraordinarily high risk of developing colon cancer and a very high risk of developing cholangiocarcinoma as well. So we, we like to pay very close attention to them. With regard to vaccinations, you know, vaccinations are a really important topic, uh, especially over the last uh, few years here. But even prior to that, we like to make sure, and this is particularly important in the general practitioner space, we like to make sure that individuals are up to date on their vaccines, for instance, but not excluded to viral hepatitis vaccines. So hepatitis A, hepatitis B, HPV vaccination. We like to um, ensure that individuals are staying up to date with their influenza vaccines and their pneumovax. And then, of course, um, as is topical nowadays, COVID-19 vaccines are really important. And the current recommendations actually would recommend that individuals with inflammatory bowel disease on, you know, immunomodulator or biologic therapies actually have three full doses of the COVID-19 vaccine and consideration for a fourth dose, which would be a booster.
0: Well, that was great. Thank you so much, Chad. And I'm going to try and summarize a few little key points that you brought to us here. Recap. So really, a lot of this comes down to suspecting the diagnosis when you see the patient in the outpatient setting. So if you're seeing a patient who is either a sort of young adult, late teens up until their 30s, or perhaps in that later peak in the 50s and 60s, and they have some of the classic symptoms, be it chronic diarrhea, abdominal pain, weight loss, and anorexia, or if it's potentially ulcerative colitis, then maybe the um, bloody diarrhea. Of course, also look out for those extra-intestinal manifestations, which might be the first presentation of actually the inflammatory bowel disease. For diagnosis, you're going to look at blood work, like iron studies, CBC, CRP, and a fecal calprotectin can be useful. But of course, you're going to be sending this patient on for at least some sort of imaging initially and follow up with a specialist for endoscopy and then biopsies. Medications is not something that we're going to be starting in the outpatient setting but it's a really good idea to be familiar with the medications that our patients are on. So I recommend that everyone go back and listen to the lists you just went through there with those potential side effects as well, because those are obviously things that patients might come to us with symptoms of, hey, do I have MS? And if you look down and look at their new medication and say, ah, perhaps it's related to this. So always important for us to know that stuff. Refer early. Um, I guess it's like voting. You want to vote early and often. So same thing for referring. Refer early and always. And obviously, the faster we get these patients started on treatment, the um, better their long-term outcomes can be. Watch out for long-term complications like malignancy. So if you see that your patient has fallen off the track with their follow-up to their specialist, and you realize that you know they haven't had a colonoscopy in a while, and you're worried about their risk of malignancy, then certainly make sure that you get them hooked up back with that specialist. And all the preventive stuff that we do well in family medicine, and key to that would be vaccinations of all sorts. Does that sound about right?
6: That is bang on. You've summarized it well, so thank you for doing that. Thank you for um, identifying this as an important uh, subject matter. It's a really important disease, inflammatory bowel disease, one that is quite debilitating for our patients. And uh, family medicine, uh, general practitioners are uh, key in uh, keeping these patients healthy.
0: And I think you made a really interesting point, which you emphasized a couple of different times, which as family physicians, we have to really remember. I mean, anyone who's taking care of these patients should, but the impact that this can have on a patient's quality of life. For us, we're used to seeing these flares. You know, we're used to dealing with these patients when they present more acutely or even just renewing some of their longer-term medications or dealing with their longer-term issues. But this can have a huge impact on their social lives, on their mental health. If you think about fistulas, you think about all the complications that can arise. This is not an easy disease to live with. And maybe it's just me, but I feel like I'm seeing more of these people. And maybe it's because we're getting better at diagnosing them but I feel like I'm seeing more and more patients with IBD. So um, we need to remember that this really affects their entire life. This isn't just about a minor symptom that they're taking a pill to take care of.
6: Yeah, you've summed it up uh, very, very well. I mean, quality of life is key. So much to the point that um, even in our clinical research studies that we're doing now, the um, primary endpoints often aren't just how many bowel movements and how much blood are these individuals having. The primary endpoints more often are How are the patients feeling? Are they functioning well? Are they interacting in society? Are they working? Uh, Because uh, oftentimes they're not when they're unwell. And it's, uh, you know, it's a huge problem for the patient, for their families and to society.
0: Well, we love to hear about patient oriented outcomes. That's great. And I look forward to chatting more about it sometime in the future. So stay well. And thanks again for joining us.
6: Thanks so much, Vanessa. I appreciate it.
7: medicine
0: talks. Greetings, all. So I'm back, and I wanted to present a case that a colleague of mine and I took care of recently together. Well, we sort of shared care over a few days because it really highlighted a particular challenge of rural medicine, namely the act of getting a second opinion. So here's the case. This was a 45-year-old male who presented to a rural emergency room. No significant past medical history, no medications, no allergies. And the day before he came to see the doctor at the emergency room, he had slipped on some ice and fallen onto the point of his elbow. He figured it was just a bad bump, so he went home, iced it, and took some over-the-counter NSAIDs. He unfortunately had an awful night with lots of pain in his elbow, and he couldn't really straighten out his arm, so he came to the clinic. A colleague of mine assessed the patient and noted significant tenderness over the elbow region, lots of edema posteriorly, but no break in the skin and totally normal pulses distally. The patient did complain of some numbness in his forearm, but he could certainly move his fingers and the sensation was preserved distally as well. X-ray revealed a slightly displaced fracture of the radial head and what appeared to be a degree of comminution. I say what appeared to be because it was kind of hard to tell if one of the fracture lines went all the way through both cortices, but given the displacement and the position of the fractures, my colleague settled on displaced and comminuted as a description. So she called the orthopedic consultant who was on call for the hospital. As a GP-run hospital in a very remote town, the nearest orthopod is about a thousand kilometers away. But they provide a great service for us, where they can review our x-rays remotely and provide really on-the-spot consultations with us while viewing the films. Depending on the severity of the case, they can then accept a medevac, or even arrange follow-up in the ortho clinic in the next one to two days, or outline the treatment plan for those patients who can be managed locally. Sometimes, like anywhere, we have to wait a wee bit to get in touch with them, if they're operating or in the clinic. But generally, they are very available and so open to helping us. The best, of course, is when they teach us something along the way as well, because it helps us to know how they approach common issues and helps us deal with patients in the future and helps them because then we will call them less frequently for the more straightforward cases. So that's how the ortho-consult system works. Well, if that is true, can I just say as an aside, everybody wishes they had your system. Of course, that's awesome. But let's get back to the case and what happened to my colleague. She quickly got in touch with the orthopaedic surgeon and right away the interaction was tense. Oh, that's more like it. Now we're getting to the real world. Thank you. The surgeon seemed to be extremely irritated about getting the call and was rude and dismissive to my colleague in a totally unprofessional manner. This went above being, you know, slightly grumpy. After literally ranting for a few minutes to my colleague, He finally reviewed the x-rays and said that all the patient needed was a splint and a sling for a few days and that the patient needed to start ranging the elbow within 48 to 72 hours. Now, my colleague was very surprised by this, as she was sure that perhaps further imaging or examination would be needed and was assuming that this patient would be sent down for follow-up in the next two to three days. In fact, she was so surprised that, much to the apparent disgust of the orthopedic surgeon, she asked him to repeat the plan just to be sure she hadn't misheard it. Now, I was sitting next to her in the emergency room as all this was going on, and we chatted about the orthopod's attitude and what we now both thought seemed like a very odd treatment plan. So we set about doing some quick research and noted that all of our sources really said the same thing. In other words, that referral for a radial head fracture should be done within a few days of injury if it was a modified Mason class 3 or 4 fracture. Quick sidebar here for anyone wondering what the heck a modified Mason classification system means, because I certainly had to look it up as well. Mason 1. Mason 1 refers to non-displaced fractures, and luckily the vast majority of radial head fractures do fall into this class. Mason 2. Mason 2 are those fractures where there is a greater than two millimeters of displacement. Mason 3. Mason 3 refers to comminuted fractures. Mason 4. And bringing up the rear, Mason 4, and those are the radial head fractures that occur along with an elbow dislocation. This patient was definitely a mason three from everything that we could see. Yay! So now we were kind of worried. Now, my colleague was scheduled to leave town the next day, so we decided that she would apply a splint and sling now, and then I would call back to the referral center the following day, with the hopes of getting a second opinion when a different orthopod was on call. We explained this to the patient, and they were quite calm and satisfied with this plan, so they went home with the understanding that I would call them back the following day after getting that opinion. However, my colleague and I had forgotten to check one key element we had forgotten to factor in the call schedule before we came up with our plan. It was a four-day holiday-long weekend, and every day when I called for a new consult, locating told me it was the same surgeon on call. Every day for four days. Now, being on call would certainly make anyone grumpy and rude, but when the case was initially discussed with him, it was on the first day of that stretch. Of course, it still doesn't excuse giving out advice that seemed to contradict the evidence and the practice norms, and it certainly doesn't excuse speaking to my colleague that way. But, I really didn't want to re-discuss this case with the same doctor. So I kept at it, to the point where I'm sure the hospital operator thought I was a wee bit nuts. And I also kept calling the patient, checking in on him. He was doing well overall, thankfully. He was still wearing the splint and the sling, as he said it was too painful otherwise, but he was coping okay. He was using less acetaminophen and ibuprofen, and that was certainly reassuring. So finally, on day five of trying, I was put through to a different surgeon. Given the delay between when the film they were viewing was done and when I was calling, I of course had to explain the situation. And initially, they were very upset. And I understand that, I really do. But when I explained what treatment plan had been given to us, and knowing that we have no advanced imaging here or access to in-person specialists, the surgeon quickly changed her tone and was very helpful. She advised me to bring the patient back to check if they could pronate and supinate that arm. If they can't, then you're of course worried that the annular ligament is getting hung up on the fracture line or along one of those comminuted pieces. She said that what they do when they feel like maybe the pain is causing the decreased range of motion, then you do a nerve block and reassess. But a nerve block of the entire forearm was not really something I felt comfortable doing. I mean, I would have been fine attempting the block, but given the delay in this patient's care already, and the fact that this would potentially delay him seeing the specialist another day, I decided to defer that approach. I had the patient come back, and I took off the splint. There was some point tenderness over the radial head, but his range of motion was clearly blocked in pronation and supination. And this was a physical blockage. It was a mechanical block. It wasn't related to pain. So he won himself a trip south to see the specialist, where he ultimately underwent a surgery which went very smoothly. And that is really not the key point of this story. It's not of the management of these Mason three fractures. It's really more about the interpersonal relationships, and really to highlight an issue with getting a second opinion. In most single-payer healthcare systems where patients cannot choose which doctor they see, this can certainly be an issue. Resources are tight, and paying two doctors to see the same patient for the same issue isn't always easy to arrange and isn't done lightly. That being said, the few times that I have requested it urgently, the specialists were always accommodating. But here we had a situation where there was simply no second opinion to be had, because there was literally nobody else answering the phone for those four days. This wasn't a case of life or limb, otherwise we would have insisted on a second opinion, or at least a rediscussion immediately. But it highlighted how, when you are in an isolated environment, you were really dependent on the goodwill of those specialists at the other end of the telephone. These are not people that we know personally usually, so that can make any frustrating, or in this case downright insulting conversations, far more difficult to deal with. Because you don't usually share an in-person relationship with these people in any way. There's no common history. You haven't hung out with them in the staff lounge. When I've worked in bigger centers, it was possible to get sort of unofficial corridor consults as a second opinion, because your specialist friend might walk past and you can simply ask for a moment of their time, just to see how hard you should be pushing on this particular case. If they say, oh, it's no big deal, and they would have managed it the same way, then you're reassured. But if they look alarmed and concerned, then you can go to bat for the patient. This case highlighted so many things for me. Yes, of course we all have bad days, and that can get the better of all of us from time to time. But we need to remember that when a colleague calls us, they aren't doing it to disturb us. They aren't out to annoy us. And this goes both ways, you know, between specialists and emergency room docs. When people call, they're calling about a patient. And that always needs to be the priority. Excellent point, Vanessa. And
9: before we get on our high horse, I've seen people complain about consultants giving them a hard time and being inappropriate. And then those same docs turn around and do it to the paramedics or to do it to transferring docs from outside. I think the simple rule here that is, uh, you know, prevalent throughout most of the world's religions and most philosophical lines of thinking, and that
0: is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're welcome. So what do we do about this if we're in a rural hospital and we can't transfer a patient without the name of an accepting doctor at the other end? How do you get away from a place where you have to call locating every day with your fingers crossed in the hope that a grumpy doc isn't on call? Now, this might sound crazy, but trying to meet the referral center teams is a great way to do it. Socializing with total strangers a thousand kilometers away isn't always an option, but try to reach out in some way. If you have a training in their town at some point, try and organize a meet and greet or a little tour of the emergency room or the departments. It might not be a massive party, but even if just a few people show up and you put faces to names, it's going to help for the relationships. One of my favorite ways to introduce myself to the specialist team actually is when I accompany a patient on a medevac to the referral center. Now, I am a shy introvert, but even I like to sign over the patient and hopefully chat for a minute or two with my receiving colleagues. We are all in this together, so let's treat each other like the team members that we truly are, even if we've never actually met. Ignore the personal slights that you might feel from difficult conversations and deal with them afterwards if it is a pattern for a certain doctor. And remember that the most important person in the equation is the patient and their well-being. So do everything you can to advocate for them and hope to heck that your colleagues feel the same way.
9: I think this is an excellent piece, Vanessa. Thank you again. i got to say, when I was practicing, I thought that bad interactions with consultants was one of the most stressful parts of the job. I do not like to fight with people. And so when you are made to fight with people, to advocate for patients, it's super stressful. I'm not like Billy Mallon. Billy would get just this energy from fighting with the consultants, but most of us don't. So we want to avoid it. But don't avoid it too much. If you need to advocate for the patient, advocate for the patient. And I like this idea. It's a lot harder for somebody to be inappropriate and weird with you if they know you as a colleague, if you've seen them at other places. It's kind of like YouTube comments. They are the worst because they're completely impersonal. So the more that you can get to know your consultants, the better. In fact, the more you get to know your consultants and you chat and they see that you're smart, it just makes everybody's life a lot better. There are, however, some people in medicine, I don't know if you knew this, that are just not good people, and uh, you just have to find ways to work around those peeps. And sometimes, you just got to move it up the chain, because uh, you can only fight so many battles on a shift. So what are your stories? What do you do when you've got uh, difficult consultants? And do any of you have a system where the phone calls are actually recorded? I was talking to a physician that said... They were having such problems with their consultants that they started recording the calls so that it could all be in the record. And guess what? People's behaviour got a lot better. Thanks, Cardi B. Good stuff.
8: Oh, yeah. That's right chica, 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 Primary Care Medical Abstracts. With Ken and Steve.
3: Welcome to the July 2022 episode of PCMA. I'm Ken Milne and joining me, my partner, Talk To Me Goose. is Steve Brown. So excited to do PCMA for July 2022. Yeah, now the last time we recorded, it was in person together in Phoenix. <sighs> wow, what a high that was. Not that this is gonna be a bad episode, but we're back to remote recording.
2: Yes, that was very fun to have an in-person recording for sure. And
3: I think the maple whiskey helped. Yeah. Now, what was the name of the place where we hiked? It's, it's in the Piestewa Peak Wilderness mountain area in phoenix yeah and we got some great pictures it was a wonderful afternoon and yeah i uh, look forward to doing that again soon but people aren't here to listen to us banter around no about us hiking in the mountains they want high quality clinically relevant information delivered to them in ooey gooey tender digestible chunks of medical education so should we get started let's do it
1: Paper 1.
3: Evaluating the association between low-density lipoprotein cholesterol reduction and relative and absolute effect of statin treatment. A systematic review and meta-analysis JAMA Internal Medicine 2022. Nice to start this month off with a systematic review. High-quality studies. This study was trying to quantify the association between statin therapy and the absolute reduction in your LDL level, and all-cause mortality, myocardial infarction, and stroke. So they looked for adult patients, defined as 18 years of age and older, in large randomized control trials that were placed on statin therapy, and then compared to either a placebo or usual care. And their primary outcome was all-cause mortality, and then secondary outcomes were myocardial infarction and stroke. So in this search, they were able to identify 19 trials to meta-analyze containing almost 133,000 patients with an overall risk of bias graded as low. Now, the absolute risk reduction for all-cause mortality, that was their primary outcome, 0.8%. And when you looked at the absolute reduction for MI and for stroke, it was 1.3% and 0.4%. So these are tiny. These are like right around 1% or less than 1%. Now, if you want to sell something, the relative reduction, 9%, 29%, and 14% respectively, which do you think they're going to put on the uh, statin package or an advertisement? (laughs) So they did a regression analysis looking at the LDL levels and reductions and outcomes, and it was really inconclusive. So whether there was some kind of dose effect Anyways, this was a really reasonably well done systematic review that had a limited database search and it was restricted to English language only. Now, it's an excellent demonstration of how we really need to be focused in on absolute risk reductions because they can be tiny while the relative risk reductions can look very impressive. And the authors were were good to talk about the potential harms. They didn't just talk about the potential benefits, they actually talked about the potential harms in the manuscript. And statins have been associated with myopathies, new diagnoses of diabetes, hemorrhagic stroke, among other things. And if you're having a conversation with your patient about taking a daily treatment for years, if not decades, we need to include the potential harms as well as the potential benefit, and put them in numbers that people can understand. Yeah, I also appreciated that they limited their analysis to what they called hard
2: endpoints, which was, so they excluded revascularization or angina admissions, which when you think of composite endpoints, sometimes that we're going to talk about those later in this episode too, but sometimes the not as important composite endpoints can kind of overwhelm the more important ones. This also re-emphasized the benefit of secondary prevention for somebody who's already had a heart attack compared to primary. The primary benefit was pretty marginal, as we've seen before. I actually thought that this was really strange. And I saw someone actually tweeted the graph from this article that showed that was a really silly graph. Like relative risk reduction was like 20 and absolute risk reduction was like 1 and i thought it was kind of like emphasizing something which i thought had already been emphasized in lots of different ways especially here on pcma but i've seen lots of articles about oh you need to talk about the absolute risk reduction and i didn't know why they needed to like go back to the whole data set to tell us that absolute risk reduction is more important than relative risk reduction
3: yeah and it, and it's pretty visually impressive when you see that graph of the 29% woo and then you're like um wait a minute, how much was it for MI? 1% or something? You know, like, it's itty bitty tiny little, you know, so really important to to do that. And also, you know, besides hard endpoints being very objective, like alive or dead, and having very good definitions for myocardial infarctions, you know, the idea of taking someone back to the cath lab, it's a more subjective thing that, Is motivated by other, um, what am I thinking of? Cha ching reasons. And so, really good to focus in on that.
8: Bottom line.
3: This provides some data when doing shared decision making about starting and continuing statin therapy. Paper two. Abstract number two
2: is from JAMA Internal Medicine. It's a randomized controlled trial of effectiveness of an analytics-based intervention for reducing sleep interruption in hospitalized patients. I love that they call this iatrogenic sleep interruption. The patients in the hospitals are interrupted so often. How many times have you rounded on your patient in the morning? You go in at like 5 or 6 in the morning, they're like, "Oh, I just fell asleep." And you know you woke them up again. <laughs> And you you know, you're on your surgery rotation in medical school. You're waking them up at five in the morning to ask them if they pooped
3: yet. To do pre-rounds before you do the official rounds. Exactly. Ridiculous.
2: Yeah, we're not even talking about waking the patients for the medical student or the doctor to see them. This is just for vital signs. Did you poop? No. And sleep is very important for physical and emotional well-being. And once someone's been in the hospital for days on end, and they're not sleeping, I just can't imagine that that's good for their overall recovery and mental health. And so one of the reasons that we wake up patients is overnight vital signs. Is there a way that we could stop doing these overnight vital signs on patients? So these authors performed what I thought was a a very clever randomized controlled trial of a clinical decision support tool that identified patients that might not need overnight vital signs and then they stopped them where it was appropriate. And it was integrated into the Epic electronic health record, and this was compared to usual care. And I thought it was great that they, not only did they develop a tool, but then they integrated it and made it so it wasn't that hard for the doctors to use. So I thought that was pretty clever. And what happened is that, in case you don't get enough notifications in your electronic health record, a notification came up that told the doctor if a nighttime vital sign might not be useful. So then the physician could either stop the vital signs for that night, they could just say delay for an hour, you know, get rid, of the, get rid of this alert, send it to me in an hour, or forget it, I'm not doing that today. And the primary outcome that they looked at was delirium, which was as determined by a bedside scoring tool. And I thought that was a pretty reasonable outcome. We care if our patients are delirious, and so they randomized 1,930 patients. These were encounters. They analyzed it by intention to treat. And the results were that there was no statistical difference in the delirium. About 11 to 13% got patients got delirium in both groups. They were successful in reducing the nighttime vital sign checks by about half a vital sign check. So 0. 0.97 versus 1.41. <laughs>
3: Does that mean you only took the uh, systolic blood pressure and not the diet? Exactly. Blood pressure? It was like 0. 0.5 off.
2: <laughs> yes. I only took 0. 0.41 of a vital sign. <laughs> um, and they did have, you know, when you're doing a quality improvement project, you should have balancing measures to make sure that you didn't do something amazing, but then also you cause more problems. So they, there was no statistical differences in ICU transfers or code blue calls. Now, this, this study has a major confounder, which is that the physicians had patients in both groups. So the physicians might be tempted to reduce vital signs on other patients as well. They call that bleed over. And so there are lots of ways you could design a trial to decrease nighttime vital signs. I like the way they did this decision support tool. I think most of us could just sort of have a gestalt about which patients don't need nighttime vital signs. And I think there are lots of ways we could improve hospital sleep. And I I really like the way that they're, they're trying something to improve sleep for our patients in the hospital.
3: Well, Steve, you know, I'm always trying to elevate the quality of this program and minimize the dad jokes. So when I was reading this article, it made me think of Hamlet and it. And my mind wandered back to Hamlet Act 3, Scene 1, where, of course, people know it starts to be or not to be. But it actually goes on to say, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ah, there be the rub. And here's the rub. Do we really need to be waking up these people all the time? Like, where's the evidence for doing it in the first place? I think those who suggest that we need to be interrupting people's natural circadian rhythm to get their X number of hours of sleep when it probably is more important when they're ill and unwell to get a regenerative sleep, then I think they need, they meaning the people who are saying, yeah, we better wake these people up and check their vital signs, they need to come with the data that says we need to be waking these people up because it has a patient-oriented outcome. otherwise. Let them sleep. Yeah. What if our standard admit
2: orders just had, you know, vital signs, Q4, Q8, or whatever we're doing, but please don't wake patient if stable or something like that. Like that could be a standard thing and in the order set. So this is a call to everybody with hospitalized patients. You heard it from Dr. Milne. Let let patients sleep. Bottom line. A clinical decision tool can decrease nighttime vital signs in hospitalized patients and has no apparent harms,
3: but does not improve clinical outcomes. Paper three. Abstract number three COVID 19 vaccination during third trimester of pregnancy, rate of vaccination and maternal and neonatal outcomes, a multi center retrospective cohort study in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. 2021. Now, Steve and I have made a concerted effort not to overwhelm listeners with COVID studies, but we feel that vaccination is such an important preventative measure. And there seems to be appropriate anxiety in a pregnant patient with regards to vaccines that, you know, this was a study we wanted to cover. So the objective of this study was to evaluate the impact of COVID 19 vaccination during the third trimester of pregnancy. On maternal and neonatal outcomes. It was a multi center retrospective observational study of women in Israel who gave birth in the first quarter of 2021. And they had to be at least 24 weeks of gestation. And the intervention was that they had had two COVID vaccines compared to unvaccinated women. And then they excluded women if they had already tested positive for COVID 19 via PCR testing during pregnancy or delivery. So, the primary outcome was this composite of adverse maternal outcomes. And then the secondary outcomes were vaccination rate itself and composite adverse neonatal outcomes. So, they got a cohort of just over a thousand women, and 40% had received two COVID vaccines. Now, they did an adjusted multivariant logistic regression analysis. In other words, they grinded up the data and then they demonstrated that COVID 19 vaccination was not, let me say that again, was not associated with maternal composite adverse outcomes. But there was an observed significant reduction in the risk of neonatal composite adverse outcomes. And women who received the vaccination had higher rates of elective C-section deliveries and a lower rate of vacuum deliveries. So suggesting that they may be different. So this study is reassuring, though, that there is not an observed signal of harm, which is really what, you know, I think was driving the anxiety. Is it going to hurt the baby? Is it going to hurt me? And there wasn't this observed signal of harm on the maternal side. Now, I think it would be an overinterpretation to to conclude that vaccination causes a benefit, i.e. lower neonatal adverse outcomes, because it was an association. It was an observational study women who decide to get vaccinated may be different than women who decided not to get vaccinated. So these measured or unmeasured confounders could be responsible for the observed results. And in addition, the study's too small to detect some rare adverse event. So there could be a rare adverse event that happens out there, but given the known benefits of vaccination, and it's much better that a woman doesn't have COVID-19 and is sick while pregnant or during delivery than the potential rare adverse event. I thought the exact same thing as you,
2: Ken, that if people are tempted to quote this as we can improve neonatal outcomes, then I think that that's an overreach, not only because of, like you said, the observational nature of it and that there's probably some difference in the groups, but also this is a great example of where the composite outcomes are not equal. So there's a very wide range of difference for birth asphyxia, versus jaundice Mm. and those were all lumped together in the composite outcome
3: yeah i learned that composite outcome and the differences of the weighting of the composite outcomes from a patient perspective from jerry hoffman when he would say you know death mi stroke peronychia and the data was driven by perinicia. so yeah you get a yellow child a jaundice child is much different than asphyxia so um very good point bottom line There does not appear to be a signal of harm in COVID-19 vaccination during the third trimester. And there may even be a signal of benefit for the neonate. Paper four. Paper number
2: four. This is continuing my series of challenging conventional wisdom in hospitalized patients. So... This is comparing routine replacement with clinically indicated replacement of peripheral IVs. This is JAMA Internal Medicine, November 2021. Basically, every single one of our hospitalized patients has an IV, and these IVs can be a source of bloodstream infections, although peripheral IVs compared to urinary catheters or central venous access are much more likely to cause infections. So Peripheral IVs rarely cause infections, but they can be severe and you could imagine there it could be preventable. So the question is, I've been in hospitals where they replace the IVs routinely and I've been in hospitals where they just let them go as long as they will hold out. And so should we replace routinely peripheral IVs every four days and would that decrease the rates of infections? So this is an observational study in Western Switzerland, 10 sites for four years. I guess you could call this a before and after and before study. They looked at three periods. The baseline period in this hospital where they replaced the catheters routinely every 96 hours. Then they compared that to a year and a half where they replaced them only when clinically indicated. And then a reversion period where they went back to replacing them every 96 hours. So over this time period, there were two blocks where they replaced them and a block in the middle where they didn't replace them. They had over 400,000 IVs placed in the study in over 160,000 patients. And the main outcome was rate of bloodstream infections that they thought were related to peripheral catheters. And they measured that by once there was an infection, they would try to cut the tip of the catheter off to show that it was growing from the catheter also. Probably already know this if you look at the results. Most catheter infections occur after four days. Day five is the most common. So you can be pretty sure if you have your patient for less than four days that they won't get a catheter infection. In the baseline period where they were replacing the catheter, there were 11 infections out of over 240,000 IVs. In the intervention period, there were 46 infections out of over 130,000 IVs. So that's quite a bit more than before. It's actually 7 times in the don't replace group, but it's still only 0.03% of the IVs placed in the period where they just let them sit there. In the reversion period, they only had four infections out of 40,000 IVs. So again, 7 times more likely to get a bloodstream infection, but most of the patients, 80% of the patients had less than 4 days of catheter time. So I don't really know how to balance this very low risk of infection with the extra effort for the staff. And changing the catheters probably reduces phlebitis, which is not measured in the study, maybe infiltration, because lots of times when the IV comes out, it's because the patient, you know, gets a bunch of fluid in their arm. It's also uncomfortable to be poking the patient more often than needed. And it also increases the risk of needle stick for the staff. So I don't really know how to like balance all this with this, you know, increase, but still very low risk of infection.
3: So my assessment has two basic components, and then one sort of, this is what it's really about component. So the two basic ones are, I'm not sure the external validity, you know, what's it like in Switzerland in their inpatient units. I have no experience in that. I mean, I I know that in Australia, it's the physicians that start IVs, Not the nurses. And so I don't know what it's like in Switzerland, and I don't know who's better, who's worse. I know in where I practice, it's the nurses. They are so good at getting IVs, and then they can't get one, and they turn to me, and I'm like, really? Really? You want me? (laughs) I can do a central line, but (laughs) they
2: definitely don't want me putting in their IVs.
3: Okay, so that's the first point. The second is, you know, it's an observational study, so we're talking about associations. But here's the kicker the best way to prevent getting an IV complication, don't start the IV. And we're obsessed, you know, you can't be an inpatient without a leash. Why do we have to have a leash on every single inpatient? Uh, Where where is the evidence that says that's the best thing to do? And so there was a study from about four years ago by Hawkins et al. in academic emergency medicine, and they had a 10-week training strategy they had changed champions, they did advertising, surveillance, and feedback. And all it was based on was encouraging staff not to start the IV in the first place, unless they were 80% sure that the actual IV was needed. And what they found was they decreased the number of peripheral IV placements by 10%, an absolute reduction from 42% to 32%. And so I think that my take-home message is, okay, there's some complications. How often do we have to change it? All that kind of stuff. How about think really long and hard. Do you really need the IV? What are we giving them? Are we, you know, the best way to hydrate someone if they can tolerate it is orally. There are many, many medicines that are equally effective orally as IV. And so let's just avoid the problem in the first place.
2: Well, yeah. And in the US, then we run into the problem of The utilization review people are coming by and they're being like, does this patient even need to be in the hospital? And you know what I would say, probably not. (laughs) Exactly. But the bottom line is not about perverse incentives, (laughs) even though we went off on a tangent. Bottom line. Routine replacement of IVs after four days lowers the likelihood of very rare bloodstream infections.
3: Paper five. Abstract number five, estimation of breast cancer overdiagnosis in a U.S. breast cancer cohort, Annals of Internal Medicine, 2022. Now, any screening program can lead to overdiagnosis. And this can be defined as diagnosing a medical condition that never would have caused any symptoms or any problems whatsoever for the patient. And overdiagnosis can be harmful because it can lead to both psychological stress. And unnecessary and potentially harmful treatment, so physical injury. So, the objective of this study was to determine what's the approximate rate of breast cancer overdiagnosis, detection of non progressive cancers using the contemporary mammograms we're using now, so the system we have in place. And so, they looked at women age 50 to 74. Who had their first mammogram screening between 2000 and 2018, so that chunk of almost 20 years. And it was out of the Breast Cancer Surveillance Consortium, the BCSC. And this BCSC is considered really representative of the racial, ethnic, and geographic diversity of the population in the United States. Overdiagnosis was estimated indirectly through a Bayesian inference. So right there you've got indirect and inference. So we got to be careful. Now the population of women included almost 36,000 individuals with close to 83,000 mammograms. And out of all of that, they found just over 700 cancers. Four and a half percent were estimated to be non-progressive among all the pre-cancer cases. So just under five percent. Now, triple that, 15% of screen detected cancer cases were estimated to be overdiagnosed in these women with biannual screening in this age group. And out of that, they can tease out from that 15%, 6% due to detecting indolent pre cancers and 9% due to detecting progressive preclinical cancers in women who would have died of an unrelated cause. Before their clinical diagnosis got them. So, mammography, it's a diagnostic tool in medicine. And just like any other tool, it can be overused or underused. And this study really, really attempts to estimate the rate of overdiagnosis of breast cancer using the current screening technology and systems. But one of the weaknesses of the study is this Bayesian approach, it's dependent on some assumptions made in the model. And this includes, what's the natural history of disease in this cohort of women? And it was based on diagnostic records. And so we've got to be concerned about what's the fidelity of those records. Another is the loss to follow-up. What do we do with people that don't follow up? Now, they tried to mitigate against this by censoring any cancer diagnoses 18 months after the women last receiving an examination in the data, but it does limit our interpretation.
2: Yeah, I think this is fascinating. I think overdiagnosis is a really interesting thing to think about. I don't really know how to talk to my patients about it because like in this case, so two thirds of the overdiagnosis comes from somebody's going to die of something else. So
3: how do I explain that to my patient? Um, don't worry about I could, it. could die of something else first.
2: Yeah. I could do a mammogram on you right now and you could die in a car accident and that mammogram would not have benefited you at all. So, and, and I find, you know, the 6% indolent, that's a pretty small proportion of the cancers found. And most of my, when I have found a patient's cancer, even when I don't even know if it was really that well advised that they got the screening test or was kind of on the fence, that patient is like like your lifetime patient gratitude forever. It's really hard to explain to a patient what overdiagnosis is. And so to me, overdiagnosis is like I've filed that now in the category of kind of like interesting things, but probably not things that are going to change that many patients' thought processes about whether they should get screened or not.
3: I think one of the difficulties is taking... You know, usually we have trials or studies that look at a patient population that have a disease. And even then, it's hard to translate that down to an individual patient's decision because you're talking about a cohort. But now we're talking about a screening test that usually has this cast the net really large for asymptomatic people. And how do you translate that into an individual one-on-one doctor-patient shared decision-making process? And what you're, I I hear frustration in your voice. I feel it too. Like, how do you do that? How do you sit down and say, you know what? One in seven of these cases is just going to be overdiagnosed. Whoa, whoa, whoa. what does that mean? Right. And how do I put that in perspective for the patient?
2: And most doctors that you talk to about overdiagnosis thinks that it means false positives. Yeah. So you start with having to do a whole conversation about, nope, we're not talking about false positives. This is really cancer. It's just cancer that, that wouldn't have any clinical significance. And everyone's like, well, if I have cancer, I don't want to just sit there with my cancer. You've heard the analogy of the turtles, rabbits, and
3: birds. I know about the turtles, and I know about the rabbits, and I know about the birds and the bees. But where do the birds come in <laughs> with the turtles and the rabbits? Please help me. Well,
2: so this was really interesting. I actually saw this on the Netflix show, The Comiskey Effect where the character played by Michael Douglas was explain, he had prostate cancer and he was explaining it as far as it's a turtle cancer. But if you imagine that your screening is building a pen around to keep your animals on your farm, if you have turtles, you don't really need a pen. They're going to just stay <laughs> there anyway. They're not really going to go anywhere. The pen can hold the rabbits in, but the birds are going to fly away regardless. Cause this is just like a fence. So the analogy is well, there's some cancers that are so slow growing you don't need screening. There's some cancers, the rabbits, that you might actually catch with with building a pen or doing a screening program. But there's other cancers that screening programs don't help for, like ovarian cancer would be an example of this, because they progress very rapidly. So there's no screening methodology that will get them. And so I'm not sure where this I guess the overdiagnosis is kind of like the turtles. But anyway, I was glad to see this enter into pop culture the, the, in the, on the Comiskey effect, the idea of maybe not all
3: screening is a fabulous thing to do.
8: Bottom line.
3: The summary statistic of one in seven cases of screen-detected cancer is considered, by definition, overdiagnosed in women age 50 to 74 years of age with mammograms, and this can inform your shared decision-making process. <music> Paper six.
2: Abstract number six is the assessment of hypothetical out-of-pocket costs of guideline-recommended medications for the treatment of older adults with multiple chronic conditions 2009 and 2019. Ken, can I start by asking you a, a question about the Canadian healthcare system?
3: Absolutely. I'm open to any questions you have.
2: Do older people pay a substantial amount of money for their medications in Canada?
3: No. No, we have a, each province is separate, right? So each state in your case, uh, it's federally funded, provincially administered. And in Ontario, we have over 65 are on something called ODB, Ontario drug benefits. And uh, the vast majority of their medication, as long as it's on the list is paid for. Uh, there's a small startup or deductible, I think you'd refer to it as, that can't exceed a certain maximum. Okay. So it's pretty, it's pretty minimal. Yes. Yes. I think yeah. it's pretty minimal, but
2: yeah. Well, in the US, Medicare covers healthcare for adults over 65 years of age. That's been in place since 1965. But until 2006, there was no prescription drug coverage under Medicare. Oh, and, wow. and you all know, yeah, you all know um how expensive drugs are, and maybe when it started in 1965, there was only like furosemide and penicillin. So maybe it wasn't thought to be a big, yeah, maybe it wasn't thought to be, you know, they hadn't discovered like ACE inhibitors yet. So in 2004, there was an estimate that a patient with five chronic diseases would be paying over $6,000 annually in drug costs, which is about 20% of the patient's income. So in 2006, Medicare passed a drug benefit plan which still requires some out-of-pocket costs, including co-payments and monthly costs. But Medicare started to cover a lot more of the drugs. And we know that many Medicare beneficiaries, people over 65, have multiple chronic conditions and also a limited income. So these authors of this study sought to look at how much older Americans are currently paying for out-of-pocket drug costs in the prescription drug plans. So they looked at 2009, and 2019 Medicare prescription drug plans, which if you want to know another problem with the U.S. health system, there's over 3,500 Medicare prescription drug plans. So how does a patient choose amongst those? But they calculated the costs associated with guideline recommended medications for the eight most common chronic conditions. atrial fibrillation, COPD, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, and type 2 diabetes. They looked at median annual out-of-pocket costs for individual conditions. So the results, if you have only one condition, then which is osteoporosis, you'll basically pay $32 for guideline-recommended management. The highest is atrial fibrillation, and that's most likely because of the DOACs. But the median there is out-of-pocket of, of $1,579. If you have a cluster of five commonly comorbid conditions, the out-of-pocket cost is about $2,000. If you have all eight chronic conditions, it's over $3,500. And there was actually a, a slight decrease from 2009 to 2019 in many conditions because of wider availability of generics. But you can imagine that in that same time, there some costs went up like atrial fibrillation. And then there's a lot of new diabetes medicines, which are expensive. So the costs went up for for that. And so this sort of scratches the surface because it doesn't account for physicians who go rogue and prescribe medications not in concordance with the guidelines or patients who have preferences or complicating factors that require other medications the reason that osteoporosis is so cheap is because if you give alendronate that's super cheap but if you give denosumab then that's more expensive which is about 1300 every 6 months but i th- you know this is useful to know that patients even with prescription drug coverage still may be paying substantial amounts of cash for their
3: medications and not to be a nihilist but one of the things that i would do is i would go back to what is the actual evidence being used to promote the intervention? And I know in the manuscript, they said they only use class one or class two A. And so I'd like to tease out how many had class two A evidence and are, in other words, bang for your buck, you know, cause we, we have this number needed to treat and how long does the patient have to take these chronic, cause these are chronic conditions, right? So how long do you have to take that medication? And if the number needed to treat for, let's say, a statin is in the triple digits, you know, 200, you're going to have to take this drug for 10 years and 200 of you won't have any benefit. And so I'd like to go back to the original evidence and say, how robust is it? Because it's already been filtered by these guidelines. And I'm pretty familiar with some of the guidelines and those guidelines can have biases, that could influence the spin and recommendations that is outside the purview of what's the best evidence. And so uh, maybe one of the ways is do we really need to have our patients on all of these medications?
2: I love that, Ken. And one of the advice that I give residents sometimes is ask the patient, do you have any trouble paying for your medications? And I think that this study highlights that we should do that also for patients who have Medicare. Absolutely. Bottom line. There are substantial out-of-pocket costs for most older Americans with chronic disease.
8: Paper 7.
3: Abstract number 7. This is the efficacy of ginger as an antiemetic in children with acute gastroenteritis, a randomized control trial in that journal that you all wait for beside your mailbox, Elements, Pharmacology, and Therapeutics, 2021. My subscription just ran out. Oh, I wish they'd go electron. No. Um, (laughs) Steve, I don't know about you, but my mom was a big promoter of giving me flat ginger ale whenever I had a tummy ache and had to stay home from school. Did your mom have that sort of? No, we didn't have a ginger ale thing, but maybe your mom was like super evidence-based. I don't know. I'd like to, you know, smart woman, of course. But the objective of this study was to investigate if ginger can reduce vomiting in children with acute gastroenteritis. It was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial in outpatients that were aged 1 to 10 years of age with acute gastro in Italy. Now, there were a number of exclusions, so can't apply it to everyone. The intervention was this liquid ginger preparation that they would give them 20 drops, that would equal this 10 milligrams of whatever this substance was. And the control was a placebo. Now, the primary outcome was, did they vomit at least one or more times after the first dose of the treatment? And then the secondary outcomes included the severity of the vomiting and safety of the product itself. They powered the study and got 150 children into it. It was a 50-50 split. And the mean age was about five years of age. The primary outcome was observed in 67% in the ginger group and 87 in the placebo group. So it did work. There was a 20% absolute reduction in this vomiting. And so it gave you a number needed to treat with ginger of five. So that's pretty significant. Now they, they didn't record any adverse events in either group. So this is really an interesting study that builds on some previous research. They did a good job of trying to match the smell and taste. That was one of the concerns I had is like, well, can you smell the ginger? And they actually did some aroma things and they masked the smell and the taste to minimize the placebo effect. And a challenge for listeners would be, well, can you find liquid ginger product for children? And in addition, I just want to put a warning out there. Commercial ginger ale contains very little, if any ginger at all. Don't tell your mom. Well, I don't know. In 1968, maybe it did. (laughs)
2: Right. Yeah. We talked a few months ago about the importance of the placebo being, you know, masking and not knowing. And so not only do they add like some aroma thing, they added anise, which is like a pretty strong. So I don't even think the ginger tasted like ginger, which makes the placebo more credible.
3: Yeah. They tried to mask it. Yeah. This is
2: super interesting. I think. If someone figures out how to get the you know the right amount of ginger or whatever, that might be useful. Why not try it?
3: Yeah, yeah, no. It uh, if somebody's out there ready to commercialize it and call it, and you can credit you know take the call it ginger snap, <laughs> you know like in a snap. You know we're going to get rid of your kids vomiting. I mean parents would love it, right? If they could do something at home. You know, you could feed into this natural fallacy of, oh, it's ginger and all that kind of stuff. But hey, I I like to read around every article we pull up. I don't just read the article. I pull references. I dive down into the supplemental material and I go out into the lay press. And there was an interesting story when I was reading around this, that there was a man in Canada who sued Canada dry ginger ale. So it's considered the champagne of ginger ales in Canada. So he sued Canada dry ginger ale for marketing health claims because it contained ginger. And it said contains real ginger on it. And he was awarded $200,000 plus his legal fees. He won. And uh, apparently there were similar suits in the US as well with regards to making claims that ginger ale contains real ginger when it actually didn't.
8: Bottom line.
3: It looks like Dr. Mom was right that ginger... Can ease nausea and vomiting in children with non-severe gastroenteritis, but not from commercial ginger ale sodas. Fun study. Paper 8. All right, abstract number 8 is another MythBuster: The
2: association between generic to generic levothyroxine switching and thyrotropin levels among U.S. adults. This is JAMA Internal Medicine, February 2022. For years, there has been a persistent myth, which has been at least partially, probably mostly supported by the drug companies, that brand levothyroxine and generic versions cannot be used interchangeably. So the authors that came up with the study that we're about to talk about are super smart because they churned multiple papers out of the same database. And they actually did another study, which I'll have the reference to in the show notes, where they talk about the difference of starting and whether you use generic or brand name and there's no difference. So there's more evidence to confirm that generic versus brand levothyroxine is no different, but this myth is perpetuated. The American thyroid association in 2014 recommended not switching between generic forms of levothyroxine. But sometimes when the patient goes to the pharmacy, their, their generic might not be available. There are basically three main generics in the U.S. for levothyroxine. And so the question of this study is, is it okay to switch between generic forms of levothyroxine? They use a national claims database that's linked to laboratory test results, and they looked at patients 18 years or older that filled a generic levothyroxine prescription over an 11-year period, and they had a stable drug dose. The primary outcome was proportion of individuals within the normal range, 0.3 to 4.4 of TSH, or markedly abnormal TSH, less than 0.1 or greater than 10, using the first available laboratory results 6 to 12 months after a new prescription or a switch. So what are the results? Over 15,000 patients filled generic levothyroxine. Most of the patients, over 56%, had daily dose of 50 milligrams or less. And we've talked before about how the lower your dose of thyroid medicine, the less likely you are to need you know, adjustments and switching. But 82% of these patients continued taking the same generic, but 18% received a different generic. So that's they called that a switch. So about one in five switched and the results show no difference for the switchers. The normal TSH was in 83% of the non-switchers and 85% of the switchers, not statistically significant. And there was also no difference in markedly abnormal TSH. So your patient is like 2 to 3% in both groups. So your patient's not likely to have a markedly abnormal TSH because they switched to a generic formulation. So this is not
3: an RCT. This is still pretty convincing data for me. So I'm guessing the funder of this study was big generic, not big pharma. (laughs) Right. (laughs) At the end of the day, you know, this is lab oriented outcomes anyways, even if they found some small statistical difference with regards to their TS, who cares, right? If you have blinded patients and they had no idea and you gave them symptom scores, I bet you they would have no idea that their medication was changed. From one generic to another generic to a brand name, whatever. They would be unaware of any changes whatsoever from a patient oriented standpoint.
9: Bottom line
2: switching levothyroxine among generics does not lead to worsening control of thyroid levels.
3: Paper nine. My final paper, abstract number nine benefits and harms of respiridone and palperidone for Treatment of Patients with Schizophrenia or Bipolar Disorder, a meta-analysis involving individual patient data and clinical study reports. This is out of BMC Medicine 2021. And I regularly see patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disease when I'm working a shift in the emergency department, so that's one of the reasons I picked this study. The goal of this systematic review was to determine the potential benefits and potential harms of risperidone, paliperidone, and paliperidone palmitate in treatment of patients with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder using individual patient data and clinical study reports. They followed the PRISMA individual patient data guidelines and searched multiple databases. They included only randomized control trials using these two drugs versus placebo for schizophrenia or bipolar. And then their primary outcome was something called the positive and negative syndrome scale or P-A-N-S-S. And this score or scale is considered the gold standard for assessing psychotic behavior disorders. And it looks at three subscales of both positive, negative, and general psychopathology. So in this systematic review, they identified 35 studies With over 12,000 patients, 25 of the studies were schizophrenia, and 10 were for bipolar. And they found that each one of these drugs had a significant impact in the mean difference. So you were better on this drug than off this drug for your positive and negative syndrome scale. But the interesting thing was when they looked at the clinical study reports They reported almost twice the number of adverse events and nearly eight times more serious adverse events than were contained in the journal publications. Because you got the clinical study reports, but then you also have what's published. And these authors went to get that clinical study report and not just go on what was published. And so I can't overemphasize this enough. This is super important for multiple reasons. It really highlights that efficacies can be less when data is analyzed using individual patient data, and that the harms can be grossly underreported in journal publications. The meta-analysis of individual patient data reports more conservative estimates than the effect sizes that were reported in a previous systematic review looking at these drugs, and a Cochrane review as well. So Individual patient data is the gold standard when you're doing systematic reviews. And this is a a lens we need to remember that we're looking through when clinically appraising the published medical literature. The potential benefits tend to be overestimated in general, and the potential harms significantly underestimated. And this data should be used to lobby regulators for more transparency in research and easier access to this information. I think it's an ethical responsibility of any researcher or any ethics committee. If patients are putting their bodies on the line to improve care and to uncover what is the best way forward, then that data should be available and not hidden behind any paywalls or corporate structures. Yeah,
2: did you see that the Yale group that designed this like database searching tool, it's called the Yoda. They should yes. like, They shortened it to so it's like
3: avoid publication bias we should. Oh, we should talk for the rest of the abstract like Yoda. I like it. <laughs> but but I that was the take
2: home <laughs> for me too. When something's published, it's usually going to have kind of a spin or look favorable and and as you mentioned And we're going to talk about this in the next thing to greatly underestimate the harms.
3: Yeah, it's going to oversell. Now it makes me think of, judge me by my P value, do you? (laughs) Um, Because I use that in talks sometimes about discussing P Mm -hmm. values.
8: Mm -hmm. Bottom line.
3: There's a small clinical effect of risperidone and palperidone in the treatment of schizophrenia and bipolar disease, and the potential harms are greater than previously reported.
4: Paper 10.
2: Abstract number 10. We're
3: going to close out with a guideline.
4: Guideline review.
2: We told you that we'd bring you a critical appraisal of guidelines periodically. And this is the oral and topical treatment of painful diabetic polyneuropathy. An update from the American Academy of Neurology published January 2022 in the journal Neurology. We know peripheral neuropathy is super common in our patients with diabetes, and we definitely need to know the best evidence to offer treatment options for our patients. This is an update of a 2011 guideline from the American Academy of Neurology. As we've discussed before on PCMA, according to the National Academies, guidelines should meet eight criteria. Transparency, management of conflict of interest, A systematic review guideline development intersection, establishing evidence foundations for and rating strength of guideline recommendations, clear articulation of recommendations, external review, and keeping it updated. So before I go into the recommendations, I'll, you know, this is like spoiler alert on whether we think this guideline is useful. So the number one thing for me is there is no discussion of harm
3: in this guideline. Oh, there, there, there's one. There's one. But we'll Oh, get
2: to oh it. I, mu- I must have missed that. Okay. Well, it was not about gabapentin.
3: No, it was don't use opioids. Right. Exactly.
2: Yes. So gabapentin, for example, we know according to the number, the NNT.com number needed to harm eight to develop dizziness, 11 to develop somnolence, 13 to develop ataxia and 21 to develop edema. So Not mentioned in this
3: guideline at all, the harms of gabapentin. You can't look at one side of the coin. You know, you can't. Come on, guys. You just can't. Exactly. The conflicts of interest
2: are a full page long, but they did discuss that only three panel members had what they thought were relevant, and they were excluded from the making of the recommendations. There were no family physicians or patients on the panel. I couldn't tell if there was an outside peer review. They did a good job of using a patient oriented outcome of reducing pain. And they did explicitly discuss the strength of evidence in their recommendations. They found 95 articles to review for their evidence search. And here are the recommendations. First of all, you should assess patients for diabetes with, for painful diabetic neuropathy. Okay. Good enough. Level B. You should check for concurrent mood and sleep disorders. That's good. Level B. So here are the medication recommendations. You should offer tricyclic antidepressants, SNRIs, gabapentinoids, or sodium channel blockers like lamotrigine to reduce pain. This is a level B. Most of those have moderate level evidence and moderate effect size, except for tricyclics, which have low level evidence. They thought that topical capsaicin had low-level evidence and probable small effect size. We should offer a trial from a different class if we didn't get improvement from the first class, and then just like you said, Ken, do not use opioids for the treatment of peripheral diabetic neuropathy. The lack of discussion of medication harms is a deal-breaker for me on this guideline.
3: Yeah, so I broke it down into a couple of things I liked and a few things I didn't like. On the like side, yeah, don't use opioids for this, okay? Chronic neuropathic pain from diabetic neuropathy, opioids is not a good choice. They also, of course, had a disclaimer saying this is not intended to substitute independent professional judgment, which I like because it's right there and it's to guide our care, not dictate our care. So I like that they have that disclaimer, but there are so many things that I didn't like. Most of the studies were based on one to three month follow-up for a chronic condition. I mean, your diabetic neuropathy does not go away after six weeks of treatment. It's about not curing, right? It's about controlling and, and trying to minimize suffering. And so the fact that these you know, outcome assessments were done at one, two, or three months is going to favor benefit and minimize harm. You know, What's it like after a year? Are people still thrilled to be on their gabapentinoids? And what's the side effect profile like? You've already mentioned the harms enough times, but my final complaint, I guess, would be there was no patients that I could find on the guideline committee. And if we're doing evidence-based medicine, evidence-based medicine needs to collect the best evidence, which they searched for. It needs to include clinical expertise, which they are. But what about the third pillar? What do patients give a, I want to swear here, but what do patients care about? what are their preferences and values? And maybe you should have patients sitting at the table to keep us focused on why we're there. We're there because it starts with patient care and it ends with patient care.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. The values when you make a judgment in a guideline are super important. And to have a panel or a group of patients to bounce those values off before you publish a guideline, super great suggestion.
3: Yeah, just having a whole bunch of, you know, highly educated neurologists sitting around talking about the evidence and talking about their clinical experience, what about the patients? What do they think? And and I'm often surprised in clinical interactions where I think and you know the example I use is, "Oh, they really want antibiotics for this cold." And without asking them, the number of times I'm surprised is th- actually that's not why they're there. That's not what, you know, and so The best way to figure out, and and I'm just spitballing here, Steve, the best way to figure out what patients value and prefer, ask them.
2: Yes. Someday on your tombstone, which I hope is a very long time from now, Ken, it will say proponent of shared decision-making. Oh, that's nice. Thanks, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) To bring up your mortality, I'm not sure how nice that was, but. That's fine. Bottom line. Several medications are recommended as helpful for painful diabetic polyneuropathy, but harms also should be considered.
3: There we go. We've finished up another month of PCMA. Remember, we are looking for your feedback. We want your feedback. We want your comments. Even if you want to just send us your best dad joke, we're here waiting to listen and chuckle to ourselves about your dad jokes. But come on, we love interacting with our audience. So send us your feedback. Get a hold of us. If there's a paper you want us to review, absolutely. We'll look at that. Please get a hold of us. Yes. Talk to you soon, everybody. Bye for now. I can sum this all
8: up. Summary.
0: Now it's time for the summary. And as usual, we start with PCMA. And Adrian, you're up first with Ken's paper number one.
8: PCMA, Article
1: 1. All right, so the first paper was evaluating the association between low density lipoprotein cholesterol reduction and relative and absolute effects of statin treatment. Colon, a systematic review and meta analysis from JAMA Internal Medicine 2022. So this was a high-quality study looking to see if statin therapy had any impact on all-cause mortality as well as incidence of MI and CVAs. And while the relative risk reduction with statin use looked pretty impressive with numbers like 29 and 14%, if you look at the absolute risk reduction, the results were not so impressive as the numbers hovered somewhere around 1% level. So the authors did make Ken happy in that they were upfront about their potential harms associated with statins, but otherwise this information is not really that earth-shattering.
0: All right, paper number two, Effectiveness of an Analytics-Based Intervention for Reducing Sleep Interruption in Hospitalized Patients, a Randomized Clinical Trial in JAMA Internal Med 2022. Steve and I both agree that we like the focus this study placed on how much of the sleep disturbance that occurs in hospitals occur because of vital signs that we order for overnight. The authors designed a study tool to prompt doctors to reconsider overnight vitals in patients and look to see if a reduction in those overnight vitals actually led to a decrease in delirium in those patients. There were some confounding factors, but it turns out that the intervention didn't make a statistical difference in terms of delirium reduction. However, I will echo Steve and Ken and say that just because letting patients sleep instead of checking their blood pressure every two hours doesn't decrease delirium, perhaps just having a better night's sleep is a good enough outcome. And perhaps the default should be vital signs except respect sleep as opposed to the other
1: way around. Paper number three was COVID-19 vaccination during the third trimester of pregnancy. Rate of vaccination and maternal and neonatal outcomes, a multi-center retrospective cohort study from British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, 2021. So this was an Israeli study looking at maternal and neonatal outcomes after uh, pregnant moms received the uh, COVID-19 vaccinations during their pregnancy. So they found that there were no adverse outcomes for the moms who were vaccinated during pregnancy. And there was an association between fewer adverse outcomes in the babies of the vaccinated moms. So the study wasn't designed to show benefit of vaccines for the babies, but all of this is reassuring that moms who received the vaccine did well. So there's more useful information here to share with your vaccine-hesitant pregnant ladies uh, that you might be encountering.
0: All right, paper number four, comparison of routine replacement with clinically indicated replacement of peripheral IV catheters in JAMA Internal Medicine 2021. This observational study looked at whether or not we should automatically replace IV catheters every four days for inpatients, or is it better to use them until they fail? This was a Swiss study done over several years where they had months of replacing the IV Q4 days, and then many months of replacing the IV PRN, and then again going back to a policy of months and months where they replaced it Q4 days, and they compared all the different rates. So they looked at rates of bloodstream infections and didn't really find much of a difference that seemed particularly meaningful, although the less time a patient has an IV and the lower the rate of infection, which isn't exactly earth-shattering. The study was also limited in that it didn't consider the pain for patients of having repeated IVs, the issue of infiltration, or other IV complications such as phlebitis. And I really agree with Steven Ken that maybe our focus should be on minimizing the use of IVs in general, unless our patient really needs
1: it. All right, paper number five, estimation of breast cancer overdiagnosis in a U.S. Breast Screening Cohort, again, Annals of Internal Medicine from 2022. So this study looked at 36,000 women in a cohort that was felt to be representative of the US female population between the ages of 50 and 74. It was looking to see what degree screening mammography in this age would result in overdiagnosis of breast cancer that would have been indolent and not clinically significant. So it turns out there was a fair bit of overdiagnosis with routine mammography, somewhere between four and a half to 15% of cases. But remember that just because we felt that it was an overdiagnosis, our patients might not agree with that, right? So this is good information to share with patients if you are talking about harms of screening tests, but you'll need to make it clear that these are cases of overdiagnosis, not false positives.
0: Paper 6, Assessment of Hypothetical Out-of-Pocket Costs of Guideline-Recommended Medications for the Treatment of Older Adults with Multiple Chronic Conditions, 2009 and 2019, from JAMA Internal Medicine, 2022. So in this study, the authors looked to compare the out-of-pocket costs for meds faced by older Americans who had multiple medical conditions, and they compared data from 2009 to 2019. The costs actually decreased a little bit over time, but depending on which chronic condition the patient has, even with Medicare, which pays for a lot of the cost, it can still cost the patient thousands of dollars a year. So don't prescribe a medication without thinking if it is really needed, and if it is needed, can the patient actually afford it?
1: Paper number 7, Efficacy of Ginger as Antiemetic in Children with Acute Gastroenteritis, a Randomized Controlled Trial. And this was from Aliment Pharmacology Therapeutics in 2021. So this Italian randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of kids from ages 1 to 10 with acute non-severe gastroenteritis, they looked to see if ginger could reduce vomiting. So they used this like liquid ginger preparation For patients and they found it led to an actual 20% absolute reduction in vomiting. So that's a number needed to treat a five, which is pretty impressive. So I'm really hoping that we can get that uh, magic ginger elixir over here on the side of the pond soon. Me too.
0: Paper 8, Association Between Generic to Generic Levothyroxine Switching and Thyrotropin Levels Among U.S. Adults, JAMA Internal Medicine, 2022. This study of 15,000 patients used a national claims database and linked lab levels to see if there was any truth behind the story pushed by pharma that brand name and generic levothyroxine are not interchangeable. Shock of all shocks, there was no difference in TSH control based on whether you got generic or brand name levothyroxine.
1: Article number 9. Benefits and harms of risperidone and paliperidone for treatment of patients with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. A meta-analysis involving individual participant data and clinical study reports is from BMC Medicine 2021. So this study looked at individual data sets for trials comparing risperidone or paliperidone versus placebo for the treatment of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. The evidence did show that the medications had positive impact on patients, but this careful examination of individual patient data revealed that adverse effects were underreported in the initial trials. So something we always need to remember when we're looking at these papers.
0: And rounding out PCMA for the month, paper number 10, Oral and Topical Treatment of Painful Diabetic Polyneuropathy Practice Guideline Update Summary Report of the AAN Guidelines Subcommittee in Neurology 2022. This was an update on the 2011 guidelines, and right off the bat, Steve is annoyed. I have to admit, I kind of love it when he gets riled up, but I totally understand his frustration here. Just as two examples of things to be annoyed about. The authors didn't touch on any of the harms of gabapentin use, which seems kind of like a massive oversight, and the authors had a list of conflicts of interest that was a page long. One page. Now, in terms of the suggestions themselves, there wasn't really anything earth-shattering here. Check for neuropathy. Okay. Check for concurrent mood and sleep disorders. Yeah, that's good advice. Offer TCAs, SNRIs, or sodium channel blockers like lamotrigine. And, get this, big shock, try a different class of medications if the first one doesn't work. Nothing particularly shocking. The one clear and solid suggestion is to avoid opioids, and we all like that, so if you're going to pay attention to this guideline, that is really the only thing for which there is solid evidence.
6: It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. All
1: right, and then for the rest of the show, Hobie and Heidi chatted about the treatment approach for patients with treatment refractory depression and the potential use of ECT in these folks. Unfortunately, in this case that Hobie discussed, the patient actually refused ECT. But Cardi, have you had a patient ever undergo ECT, and, and did they have any success?
0: Actually, I have. I've had three patients who were totally miserable and despondent because they had suffered for years with depression. And they had literally tried every medication available, and therapy, and lifestyle changes. And apart from a few blips here and there, they all remained pretty miserable. One patient was even on an MAOI and was willing to tolerate all of the side effects and dietary restrictions that come along with that, but still no joy. But ECT, oh my god, it was amazing. A slightly different range of impacts for all of them, but at the end, all of them swore by it after only a few treatments, and they said that they can't believe they waited so long before trying it. So if you have a patient with treatment refractory symptoms, and you have ECT available where you work, definitely consider it as an option.
8: The generalist. Generalist.
0: Now moving on to the generalists, and well, I don't know about you, Adrian, but this piece really made me question so many things. For example, I have started to wonder if there is some global pro-furosemide conspiracy, because the only loop diuretic that was regularly mentioned in my entire career has been furosemide. I have worked in a few different places and a few different settings, but I have never used a different loop diuretic, and I've never heard of any of my colleagues doing so either. But after this piece, where we learned particularly about torsemide, let's say I am extremely intrigued. Once-a-day dosing seems to be more efficacious. I don't know, this seems like it's worth a shot to me, and I've already contacted the chief pharmacist for my region to see if we have it, and if we don't, if we can get access to it. Definitely go and have a listen to this piece if you missed it, because maybe it will change your practice too.
7: Oral Contraceptive Management
1: And then for the office segment this month, Heidi and Penny chatted about some of the common complications that arise from the use of OCP. And is just so great, and she presents things so clearly. She reminds us that it's easier to break down the complications into whether they are a bleeding-related problem or hormone-related problem. And then she went through each issue and suggested possible solutions for each one. So this was a straightforward, practical segment. Really like it. I'll for sure be listening to it again and, and taking some notes on this one.
9: Specialist's Corner
0: and like I mentioned earlier, we have a new segment this month on Right on Prime. We call it Specialist Corner. And our first guest in this little sub-segment was GI specialist Dr. Chadwick Williams. We talked about inflammatory bowel disease and how to approach the care of IBD in the outpatient setting. He gave us great advice on diagnosing it, what investigations to consider, as well as a really good breakdown of all of the different medications that are being used for this, because there seem to be more and more medications coming out. This topic can certainly be confusing, so I found his approach very helpful. Also, for any of the listeners who also does work in an emergency room, over on MRAP this month, he and I chatted about IBD in the ER context, so if you didn't get your IBD fill here, head over to MRAP.
3: Rural Medicine Talks.
1: In Rural Medicine, you discuss a case where a rural medicine colleague of yours called a specialist many hours away to get an opinion on the care of a patient, but then ended up disagreeing with that care plan and wanted a second opinion, which proved to be pretty challenging to get. So this was an interesting look at particular challenging aspect of rural medicine, one that we don't always think about, but is certainly an awkward situation, and for someone like me who hates conflict, is especially anxiety-provoking.
0: Oh yeah, I'm right there with you.
7: Anaphylaxis.
0: And rounding out the show, we had an urgent care piece on anaphylaxis. Mies and Mel went through a great approach to the patient with anaphylaxis and how to care for them when you're in an urgent care center. This was full of solid, practical information for everyone. Well, we made it. Another month of Right on Prime, done and dusted. Of course, if you still have gas left in the tank and want more educational goodness, don't forget to check out MRAP, Emergency Medical Abstracts, check out the HD videos, and of course, the online emergency medicine textbook, Corpendium. Thank you so much for joining us, Adrian. It was great to have you back in the co-host seat. Come and hang out again soon.
1: Certainly. I love being called up to the major leagues, you know? Strike one. When uh, <laughs> Heidi was on the IL, I was in AAA, I get the call.
8: Strike two! You
1: know, you're coming up to the major leagues, and I'm happy to fill in.
8: Yeah. Uh,
0: I don't know what IL <laughs> means, but I'm assuming you're talking about baseball. But, as we say, in the meantime, while you're watching your baseball, keep doing what you do.
8: Because what you do matters.